When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey guys, Jeremy Diamond here with the young boy Josh Smith and Chris Sansom from SportsProWrestling.com. Uh, before we jump into the show today, we just wanted to open up and just talk about Hannah Kimura, a stardom star who passed away this weekend at the age of 22. Um, just a very horrible, awful situation. Um, Hannah Kimura was a, a star on the reality show uh, Terrace House that comes on Netflix and um, just due to a situation on that show and um, kind of a, a disagreement I guess she was having with the boyfriend on the show and how the date went and how he messed up her Wrestle Kingdom gear um, led to fans of that show cyberbullying her, giving her death threats and um, ultimately led to her uh, taking her own life um, just at the age of 22 and just a horrible situation. Yeah. Um, I think the situation, if if I'm correct, I don't think that uh, that the guy, his name was Kai. I don't think he was her boyfriend on the show. I think they were like going on an orchestrated double date. They were just like housemates, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, or at least that's what I gathered. I've never watched uh, Terrace House, and um, I think it's similar to like Big Big, Big, like Big Brother sounds like. Um, but yeah, I mean they've kind of postponed shooting, and now with this tragedy. Uh, one has to wonder if they're going to keep shooting afterwards. Like once things, you know, come back, I don't know, but um, yeah, this was just really, really, really terrible news, you know, uh, to kind of cap off a really terrible news week. Um, a lot of personalities and figures in the wrestling industry, you know, uh, passed away in, in that week. And I think that, uh, not to minimize any of them, but this was to me one of the most shocking ones because it was, I guess they were unexpected, but this was, um, I don't know. It, it just really, really caught me off guard. Um, I mean, do you guys, I know Jeremy, you follow stardom, uh, more than I do. I mean, um, Chris, how, like, you know, do you follow it or do you have any like, um, exposure? Yeah. I mean, only by names. Um, I, you know, I'm in a lot of conversations about, Japanese pro wrestling and of course Joshi um, and stardom fall into into that kind of category as as people are having conversations. So um, so Hana Kimura is someone whose name I had heard um, you know quite a bit, especially considering she um, had a match at the Tokyo Dome this this year. Um, but I'm not familiar with her work or, or anything else. But um, the you know the communities sense of loss um last week you know through 
all of those losses, but but specifically Hanakamura because of the kind of the circumstances surrounding it. Um, it's it was really heartbreaking. So um, you know, it's it's just it's always tough when the community suffers losses like that um, in any capacity, and and especially with shocking circumstances like really all uh, everything that happened last week. It was it was it was a tough week for us for all of us. Yeah, um, just I'm lucky that I got the chance to see Hannah Kimura in action uh, two times over WrestleMania weekend in New York. And yeah, I was just kind of drawn to her from that first stardom show we saw in New York. And just, I mean, clearly, I mean, they were, they were planning on, you know, strapping the rock on her and putting the company behind her this year. She's going to be one of the kind of top stars. And yeah, she was a great performer, um, one of my favorites in stardom. I mean, we even drafted her on our, our fantasy team on the Social Suplex fantasy draft that we had a few weeks ago. And it's a great performer, had so much ahead of her. And yeah, this is really just a devastating, heartbreaking news. Yeah, I, the the exposure I really had to Hannah Kimura was essentially the uh, the showcase match that they held at the uh, G1 Supercard, uh, where she she competed and it was uh, was at Tokyo Cyber Squad against Odeatai. Yeah, yeah, um, but you know, everyone kind of knew what the deal was when it came to Hannah Kimura. Um, you know, I, one reason I knew who she was just point blank is she was one of the most beautiful you know, women's wrestlers in the world. Um, and she's very charismatic, very striking. And, you know, with the acquisition of, you know, Bushi Road of stardom and everything of that nature, the, the reports, you know, and the talk was that she was one of the people that they're going to be building the promotion around. Um, you know, and most people that were kind of in the know thought eventually, like she was going to be a big enough star to, to come stateside and, you know, wrestle for an AEW or WWE or, you know, some other promotion of that nature. So um, really, really, really shocking just uh, the, the sudden passing because I, you know, I don't think anyone really knew or, or expected something like this to take place. So, you know, so suddenly. Yeah, definitely just kind of came out of nowhere that, that Friday evening, our time and leading up to, uh, you know, Middle of the morning, Saturday, our time. So, yeah, just a crazy weekend there. And so definitely um, thoughts, prayers, condolences to uh, the family of Hannah Kimura, to her friends, and to her family. And, guys, if you're on the Internet, just just be nice to each other. And uh, check on the people that you love, your friends and your family. Stay in touch with them and just you know, make sure everybody's doing okay. The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Hey, this is Scott Norton, and you're listening to Keeping It Strong Style. What are we going to do at New Japan Pro Wrestling? What are we going to do everywhere we go? We're going to take over. That's what the Bullet Club is all about. That's what we do. And you're going to see, and everybody else in the world, how much fun we have doing it. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, keeping it strong style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, keeping it strong style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frost. From the Tokyo.
Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'ma chill and let them have it, cause this is just an intro. Keeping the strong style six stars from the get go, boy. Yeah, from Tampa Bay to the Tokyo Dome, this is Keeping It Strong Style with your hosts, Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Joshua Smith. And thank you for listening. Welcome to Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Jeremy Donovan here with the young boy Josh Smith and Chris Samsa. On today's show, we will be covering the latest news, answering your questions, and talking about the phenomenal A. J Styles. You can support our show by subscribing to the Social Suplex Podcast Network and keeping a strong style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating and review. You can also get all the podcasts and columns over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Pressing Tea store, pressingtees.com slash social suplex. That's where you can get your official Keeping It Strong Style t-shirt. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate and clicking on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong Style logo. This week's episode is brought to you by NJPWEXT, the only browser extension for NJPWWorld.com with features like dark mode, improved translations, and layouts, custom and shared playlists, synchronized viewing parties, and much, much, much more. It takes NJPWWorld to the next level. Visit njpwext.us today for details. And uh, next week, get ready for the voting. Voting will drop uh, noon tomorrow. When you're hearing this, we will be having the implications on from LLP Radio with the poll theme being the new three Musketeers. So that will be the the voting options there. So be on the lookout for the voting for next week. And, you know, we had our first voting last week, and we had the theme was Bullet Club Leaders, and the winner of the poll was AJ Styles. Yeah. Yeah, man. Bullet Club, it's real. (laughs) That's what I learned this week. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we've got Chris Samson on the the episode with us here. So, Chris, uh, how you doing, man? Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to speak about New Japan Pro Wrestling. It has been far too long. I think the last time I talked to anyone about New Japan was when I talked to Jeremy uh, <laughs> in the beginning of March. <laughs> yeah, man. Dude, that seems like like five months ago. <laughs> it was uh, it was definitely last year, right? <laughs> yeah, seriously. So uh, how has uh, quarantine yeah. been treating you, man? You know, it's okay. Um, I took some, or I had some some significant time off work, and I'm I'm back at it now. Um, my day job, but uh, this week's vacation week, pre-planned vacation, so I'm uh, hanging out in my New Japan tracksuit, talking New <laughs> Japan <laughs> pro wrestling, and uh, this is you know it's a little more relaxing uh, being a, a planned time off versus a, an unplanned time off. So it's not so bad though. The weather's turning. I ripped the doors and the top off my Jeep Wrangler, so I'm. Uh, I'm living the dream out here, I guess, but trying to stay away from people as much as I can too. So, um, the more podcasts, the better. <laughs> yeah, you guys, you guys can't see this man, Chris, Chris Samson, right now, but he's got a line mark hat on, and he's got the full on like soul young lion like line mark tracksuit on. Like, I'm very excited. Uh, <laughs> full full gear day. Actually, I've got I've got a bunch of New Japan stuff this week. I'm talking to Sean Radikin later in the week about. Um, the 2013 G1. So um, oh. I'm just like, 
Uh, yeah, I get to talk about night four, which is like the best night ever. So that's PW Torch VIP if anyone's, you know, hanging out. But yeah, so I'm like, I'm getting way back into my New Japan stuff right now. So I'm, I'm stoked. It's nice. going to be a good week. Well, I, I just want to say, I think that this was a really great first topic to kind of pick for this uh, series that we're doing because, you know, everyone kind of knows early May, Dantaku, that is, you know, the Bullet Club, uh, you know, their anniversary. And it kind of seems like right now, if you're listening to different podcasts, publications, a lot of people are kind of like reflecting on that. So I thought that this was really a great choice on your part, Chris, and uh, an appropriate choice. And, um, you know, very enlightening kind of going back and doing a, a retrospective on everything. Um, I guess my first question to you guys, are you surprised at how the voting turned out for this? I was a little bit surprised. So, you know, Josh, initially when we talked about this this topic, we put together the, the topic list, when we picked Bullet Club leaders, we were like, oh, Kenny's probably going to win. And then just so happened, you know, Chris picked Bullet Club leaders for our first topic for this week. And so I was like, all right, let's watch the voting, see what happens here. And I know both uh, Josh and I, we were kind of lead. We, we kind of wanted AJ Styles to win just because, well, I know for me, I haven't really seen AJ's, I've seen some of his matches, but I didn't get, you know, see his full run or kind of do a deep dive on his run there. You know, obviously, doing the show for two and a half years now, we've kind of covered a lot of Kenny Omega's career. So that's why I was leaning towards AJ. But yeah, um, AJ overwhelmingly winning the poll there. Uh, Finn Balor, uh, Prince Devitt, a close second there. But Kenny, very dead, close. Kenny dead last. I think people are tired of talking about Kenny Omega. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Alan Angles, uh, he, Angels uh, just buried him. And I mean, his, his career is basically over. So, I mean, what, what more can we do? No, yeah, I was it's... excited. I was excited AJ won. I mean, like when I started to get into New Japan, like AJ was one of the one guys that I was familiar with that I knew had gone back, who had time in New Japan. So, like, he was one of the first guys I, I even, like, started to, to seek out his stuff. So, and I, I've got much more context around it now. Um, so, going back this week or this past, you know, a couple of days and, and watching some matches and, and kind of, you know, exploring his, his path through and, and asking people questions about that, too. Um, people who were, like, truly paying attention at the time, um, he had a he had a in- really interesting run, and it's short, but it was really I think really meaningful for um, New Japan's growth in in the West. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely agree with that, and um, excited to talk about it here. Uh, Prince Devitt, like just one or two votes away, so. My thinking here, I don't know. It's it's so interesting because I did think Kenny Omega was going to just sweep this thing. Um, but I'm guessing that part of the reason, I think it could be a culmination of reasons why he finished dead last. I think maybe the recency of his run, a lot of people kind of were introduced to New Japan via his run and maybe they're just very familiar with it and kind of intrigued about things that maybe happened before they jumped in. You know, even though, AJ's run wasn't that long ago. Like a lot of people still weren't watching. There still wasn't English commentary, that sort of thing. And then could there also be some animosity from like some of the diehard Puro fans because, because of the way that, you know, all took off and the way he left. Cause that's, it sort of feels like that maybe it's a combination of those two things. I think some of that too. And also, I mean, if you're a listener of this show, if you've been listening from the beginning, like I said earlier, I mean, you've, you've heard us talk about Kenny Omega and cover, Kenny Omega's run because we started this show November 2017 so 
when he's really, you know, getting in that heavyweight title picture and those those matches with Okada, we kind of covered all of that already. So if you listen to the show, you've kind of heard our takes and our opinions on, you know, Kenny's run um, as a heavyweight, at least, in New Japan. And so I think probably a lot of our listeners were kind of curious on AJ Styles and Fergal Devitt. Yeah. So here, yeah, and kind of like you are saying, Chris, for me, AJ was also kind of the, the key that kind of got me into New Japan when I saw that Wrestle Kingdom 9 uh, pay-per-view um, that, you know, Jeff Jarrett was promoting with Global Force and AJ was one of the guys that they were pushing. I was like, oh, because, you know, I, I kind of dropped off of TNA, you know, somewhere during that, that Hogan era. And so AJ was always one of my favorites through that. And, you know, he's working Ring of Honor. So when I saw AJ being promoted, I was like, oh, okay, he's, he finally left TNA. He's doing something a little different now. Let's, let's check this out. I think the, the thing that I'd like to know about is, you know, Chris, you mentioned meaningful. Um, you know, as we get into this, I mean, what was so meaningful about it to you? Because I know early on with the run, some, of the, uh, some people kind of questioned the business decisions that they, they made to kind of push AJ. But in hindsight, you know, it seemed to actually be the right kind of decisions for the viability of the, you know, of the company. Yeah. I mean, I think the beginning of his run and, and I, maybe this is a good segue into um, the Dontaku match or, or that kind of um, time frame. but the beginning of the run, a lot of people had thought that AJ was done or at least didn't have that like top star, top guy energy anymore. Um, and, and that was out here in, in the U S people who had seen him through the ring of honor run and, and TNA, et cetera. But, um, you know, he, his, he came in on a hot angle. Like, so it was, it was written well. Um, and then by the summer, by the time he had his G one run in 2014, people were bought in as, as AJ as, as a, you know, a top guy and, and the leader of bullet club and, and all that. So, and then, you know, with that, I think it just, it opened some eyes and he had some great matches that were kind of vintage AJ um, that he had, he had kind of lost his way and he kind of went to Japan, new Japan and found his way back on, onto, um, onto the radar of, of being a top guy. So, um, but I, I think that was a that was a really pivotal time for New Japan. I mean, to 2014, 2015, like you hear a lot of people talk about how um, that was the time or Wrestle Kingdom 9 was that first Wrestle Kingdom that they watched. And um, that was it was good to have, um, you know, some, you know, some American guys come in and be the bad guys. And, and they were identifiable so i think it, it turned out to be a great business decision um and then they've they've kind of just kept rolling with that type of uh business decision you know through through the bullet club yeah so to kind of start talking about his you know run and debut we did have a question here from twitter follower at scott Rand's flyers he said he's never heard the story of how he was brought in did anyone dirt sheets know he was coming how did njpw time it so perfectly with Devitt leaving was the first War of the Worlds tour in place before he brought in. So what we do, I do know, so, you know, his TNA contract was coming up to an end, and it was one of those situations. He said that he was offered a contract that was 60%, like, less than what he was making on the previous deal. So obviously he was not resigning that, wanted to kind of take, you know, bet on himself and kind of go elsewhere. 
And there was a lot of rumors, I remember at the time, with um, a lot of websites saying that, you know, WWE had no interest in AJ Styles. Right. And so, obviously, he was doing indies. He uh, eventually signed an, another contract with Ring of Honor. And then uh, he signed a contract with New Japan. So, it would be the first time since 08 when TNA and New Japan had a partnership that um, AJ Styles would be coming into New Japan. And it was reported that Styles would be returning to New Japan and sign a contract with them. And like you were talking about, Chris, he came in on April 6th at the Invasion Attack show. He attacked the IWGP champ, Kazuchika Okada, after his match, laid him out with a Styles Clash, and he challenged Okada for a title match and ripped the jacket off and reveals that he is the newest member of Bullet Club. Yeah, and I I remember... um... Just before he left, they were actually running an angle in TNA very similar. It, w- it was almost basically literally a ripoff of the Summer of Punk storyline. Right, yeah. <laughs> His contract was up. He was cutting shoot promos on Dixie Carter. He took the title and defended it like in Wrestle 1 and some other places. And then uh, they couldn't come to terms. He came back and dropped the belt to uh, Nick Aldis or, or Magnus. And... Um, it did. It was kind of like people weren't really sure about AJ because he was so associated with a failing brand in TNA at the time that even though he was fantastic and even though you know he had done so much for that company and I think to this day is still arguably the the greatest wrestler they ever had. Uh, you know, there was no interest uh, in him from from you know the major players especially wwe i think they might have even offered him like an nxt contract at the time that was pretty meager and wasn't much better than what he was offered from uh from tna um but when when he came to to new japan the interesting thing there is like march 27th he's announced you know or the reports start coming out april 6th he shows up and that's literally right at the tail end of Fergal Devitt's run with the company so like all the pieces kind of were like falling right into place yeah they, 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 it's like kind of just like coincidence it's either coincidence or New Japan knew they needed someone to replace Devitt and they paid up True. Um, <laughs> right I mean like they were like oh there's here's this guy and and you know maybe we maybe they would have made a different offer if Devitt was still going to be there so I mean sometimes you know timing works both ways um but wait am i here so you say that aj styles is the best wrestler that tna ever had yeah are you forgetting the fabulous run of kazuchika okada (laughs) (laughs) wait 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 are we forgetting the x division run of hiroshi tanahashi (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but yeah you know yeah tna definitely have that kind of that stank to it and even guys who would leave tna and go to be wouldn't really have success. You look at guys like Frankie Kazarian, Lance Archer, the alpha male, Monty Brown. A lot of their top guys would eventually go to WWE and it just would not work out for whatever reason. So even if AJ would have went to WWE right after TNA, it might not have worked out the same way it did when he came in WWE 2016. Possibly, but I maybe, you know, they have a, a long track record of mishandling top talent, but I also still believe AJ is like, a once in a lifetime, like cream rises to the top sort of athlete that I think he still would have got over no matter where, because he just has a history of that. Like he literally got over everywhere he ever went his entire career, but that's a great point, Jeremy. I mean, who knows what could have possibly happened or maybe he wouldn't had have had the same level of success that he ended up having in, in the run, you know, post new Japan. Um, 
So, I mean, he, he comes into the company. What do you, what are your guys uh, takes on like the angle with him and, you know, Okada and how everything happened with this, uh, you know, first match that we're going to review here from Dantaku. I mean, as far as I can tell, people in Japan weren't that familiar with who he was and like, why, you know, why is this guy coming in and, um, you know, getting a, an immediate shot at the top title in the country, um, Mm -hmm. top title in the promotion. And then the angle was, I mean, it was hot in, in the way that like you're throwing someone into the fire and you're giving them, you know, you're strapping the rocket to them, but it was also kind of cold in the way that like no one in the building knew who he was. Um, or they, they were at least largely unfamiliar. So like the crowd at Dontaku, um, First of all, that was a really long show. Um, I decided I was going to watch the whole thing. And, um, I shouldn't have done that. But, I mean, I don't have a lot going on uh, right now. So I watched the whole show. Um, and it was long. And by the end of it, I was like, oh, okay. All right, we're doing a championship match. So I can imagine sitting in the building, too. Um, the, the, the reason that you did that is so that you could have this one, this one like, 10 second take to add so much value to the show right now. Yep. Just, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it was worth it, I guess. So much insight. <laughs> yep. Yep. It was long. Like I could have looked at the timestamp on the video and known that, um, no, but, um, the crowd was largely cold for the, I mean, con- compared to, you know, an IWGP heavyweight championship match. Now, um, the, the building energy was, was, significantly different and that changes as we go through even these matches too yes yeah the the angle that they ran um when aj like initially made his entrance like you listen to it and there's little to no reception and i was a little surprised because aj did appear in new japan on several occasions in the past and so i was kind of thinking i was like i'm sure they know him but then you think like well five six years have passed the company has had ebbs and flows. I'm sure the audience has changed. They're not really referencing TNA. Maybe they don't know who AJ Styles is at that point, you know? Right. And, and, <laughs> and different it, look. He doesn't have the, you know, the, the short spiked up hair. He's not wearing the, the shorts yeah. anymore. He's got, he's got the long tights. He's got the, the you know, the, the soccer mom haircut, the beard. <laughs> <laughs> Watch yourself, sir. That's a great haircut. And he, I mean, he went six years without even appearing there and, and um, you know, 2008 was his last appearance. So with, with TNA, so that's a pretty, that's a pretty long time. And that, that's a full cycle of wrestling fandom. If you ask me. Yeah. Now I'm, I don't know what they did in the interim between this initial match and that initial angle. I do know though, that there were a lot of like new Japan and Pearl purists here that just hated this. They like literally hated the idea that like this guy was coming in and being brought in from TNA and like given this initial shot, even if everyone kind of knew how good AJ was, it was sort of just to them against the grain of how new Japan typically operates and the booking sort of usually works. Um, and I have to wonder how many people actually thought he might, you know, up, like upset Okada in his first match and actually win the IWGP title, which is so rare. I mean, literally. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, w- I wasn't able to look back at everything, but I, can, I gotta imagine AJ had the fewest New Japan matches before winning the IWGP heavyweight. I mean, like, 
he came in and his first match he won it and like you know i asked some of the voices of wrestling guys like what was the vibe around then and um one of the guys said that um he thought that he was going to be brought in as a junior heavyweight just because of his reputation in the x division so wow (laughs) so like but that was an actual he said that was the actual the actuality of what they were kind of talking about at the time so um I mean that's but that was the vibe too. So and he, he you know he's one of the one of the guys that uh, I would consider kind of a puro purist. So um, so yeah, I mean like that aligns with what you were saying, Josh. And that makes sense because AJ is um, I don't know if he still is, but at the time he was the shortest uh, IWGP heavyweight champion ever. Yeah, that's probably still true. I mean, think, just think, thinking true. through who else has won it since then. I mean, of the new guys, unless Kenny's shorter than him, but I don't no. think Although, that's no, the case. I think Kenny's taller than him. I, yeah, I wonder if I wonder if they lie about Ricky Choshu's height and if he's not shorter than. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's kind of short. Um, but yeah, so let's. You guys want to talk about this? Uh, this first match, and uh, maybe Chris, you could start off because you selected. Maybe you want to tell us why you selected AJ Styles versus Kazusha Gokata. Don Taku 2014. Yeah, I mean, I like matches of historical significance. So um, I'm sure I've said it on this podcast before. Like, I'm not like a match in a vacuum guy. Um, so, you know, with that said, you know, someone coming in to New Japan Pro Wrestling and getting an IWGP heavyweight title shot right off the bat, like, that is significant. So, um, and it seems like a good starting point to a conversation about AJ's time in new Japan. So, um, yeah, it was, um, I, I had seen the match before, um, with less context. I was mostly just kind of watching through AJ Styles stuff when I was really first starting to get into new Japan and, um, go, you know, going back to it, I, you know, it's, it's kind of unremarkable, especially now because we see so much bullet club shenanigans. Um, but at the time, you know, I went back and read Observer and Torch and stuff um, as I was getting ready for today. But, you know, at the time, it seemed like it was much more unusual for like the Bullet Club shenanigans to kind of take over, especially a heavyweight championship match. So um, I think in that way, it was the beginning of um, this era of the, the Bullet Club and, and how they kind of act. Yeah, I think... Um... What stood out to me were a couple things. One was the lack of crowd reaction for both guys, actually. I mean, Okada had definitely more reaction, but he still wasn't fully bought into by the crowd as like the true ace of the company, the way he'd later become. And then, um, and maybe part of it has to do with what you mentioned with it being a long show, but with AJ, it's literally almost, he he's almost not even getting the courteous, like, uh, you know, we'll we'll give you a nice clap just because you're here and, and we're, you know, trying to be uh, polite. Like, he's not even getting the polite clap. It is, like, cricket, and it's <laughs> it's kind of jarring. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and one thing that kind of popped out to me, so, like, I mentioned, like, I, I've kind of I've kind of stopped following AJ towards the, kind of the latter end of his TNA run. And so, you know, I'm more familiar with kind of the, like, the X Division, high-flying AJ, kind of the work rate AJ, and... You know, towards the end of his TNA run is when he started using the calf killer slash calf crusher, whatever you want to call it, and really started kind of changing his style up and started working, kind of slowing down a little bit and working on the legs more and kind of set up that calf crusher submission hole. So in this match up here, 
you know, it's the first time I'm really seeing, you know, AJ, he's, you know, wrestling a little bit slower. He's working on the legs, you know, and trying to, you know, slow down Okada to set up this submission hole. So that was definitely kind of a little jarring for me. Yeah. And I think the, you know, the match as a whole, you know, if you, if you watch it um, in the context of empty arena wrestling, um, it was, <laughs> it, it was, it was well worked. Um, but it, it just didn't connect. And I, I think, you know, some of that is that Okada, you know, we're, th- we're thinking about Okada six years ago too. Um, mm. So he's still pretty young and he's not nearly the, the, the star that he is there now. Um, I mean, the man had a, you know, a classic with Tai Chi earlier this year. So um, with, with a super hot crowd and with no stakes, I mean, it was just a match. Um, so like he, he was in a different spot in his kind of journey with the, the new Japan fans too. So it was a risky angle, um, but the show drew, I mean, it drew a sellout. And um, I think by the end of the match, people knew kind of what, um, you know, they knew what the match was all about, but uh, I, I think the crowd was super, super surprised when, um, AJ ended up hitting the Styles Clash and, and winning. Yeah, and, and clearly this match was, a, a lot of the focus of this match was kind of establishing AJ as a member of the Bullet Club. We had, you know, Bullet Club Bucks and Tama and Carly Anderson out there getting interference, eventually getting thrown out by Red Shoes, um, but eventually coming back, and then we, we see uh, Yujiro Takahashi um, join the Bullet Club, being the first Japanese roster member to join the Bullet Club. Yeah, and uh, that was him defecting from chaos. So not only was he joining the Bull Club, but he was turning his back on the, you know, he wasn't the full leader, but the co-leader and the, you know, basically the ace of that divi- of that group. Um, you know, really, really <laughs> just a giant backstab. Um, speaking of some of the things that you guys brought up, though, I noticed these guys, it, it's interesting because, I'll go as far as to say, in my opinion, I think ultimately AJ Styles or uh, Okada ends up being AJ Styles' greatest foe and best opponent in the company. Um, But it took a while for them to develop the kind of classic matches that they'd have, like the one that they'd have at, say, Dominion the next year. Uh, They had a series of matches, and you can kind of see how they really hadn't worked that out yet here in this first match. And although it's, it's a really good match, it's not a really great match. And so there's a lot of like timing issues, some miscues, uh, just kind of like what uh, Chris said, some things just didn't connect. And then there's again, the leg work, which kind of slows things down. And then the interference, which uh, you know, also there's good interference and bad interference. I don't, I wouldn't say this is bad interference, but I don't think it was something that, was intended. It was more of a storytelling device as opposed to like uh, a great match building sort of uh, mechanism. So the, the match is interesting be- because like what uh, Chris mentioned, it's a historical match. You know, you kind of want to see where the start of um, AJ Styles like career in New Japan started and, you know, his first title win and, you know, the beginning here, but it's also not like, his most heralded match by any means whatsoever. And so it's very, very interesting to kind of just watch and see and kind of compare this to the other matches that we see later on and how he's received by the crowd. And, you know, this was the feud 
this was kind of important because we talk about AJ being given the the title and how important that is, but you know, ultimately Okada was is their cash cow. Okada is their golden boy. And after the Tanahashi feud, this is kind of capped in between his big Tanahashi matches for like two years. This is his biggest foe aside from Tanahashi. They put that much trust in AJ Styles that they like trusted him to establish a two year feud with their ace, which or their, you know, their budding ace. Like that's kind of crazy. Yeah. And in those, in those two years, AJ and Okada had five singles matches. So, I mean, that's, that's got to be meaningful for the growth of Okada too. And like it, it establishes Okada as like that core good guy because, um, you know, maybe he didn't have that kind of like classic heel um, heavyweight to fight against. That was going to be kind of a long lasting feud at the time. So, um, you know, Okada Tanahashi, like those are classics, but like neither of those guys, um, lived as as heels forever, right? So, like this really established Okada as a potential top babyface for the company. Um, and and like you said, like some of those matches as you get later on, especially that Dominion, um, that Dominion match, like some of those matches just are incredible, like really top notch stuff. Yeah, and uh, one thing I I noticed from the commentary, so obviously this match was a Japanese commentary, and. Uh, they were mentioning. I heard him say, you know, Japanese number one drop kick versus American number one drop kick. Um, so that that was kind of pretty cool that they were bringing that in. And even though they kind of were sour on TNA at the time, they were still. I heard the name. I heard the letters TNA in the, in the commentary. So clearly, they were probably mentioning. You know, this guy's a former TNA World Champion. He's to be in TNA. And so, uh, from a commentary standpoint, it sounded like they were really trying their best to put AJ Styles over and put this this match over. Yeah, absolutely. Um, ultimately, though, the match ends and we kind of see the crowning of a new IWGP champion, which it's interesting because, again, the crowd, like, they booed when Yujiro uh, showed up. They booed when it was over. But, like, they almost kind of didn't seem like they believed that this guy was going to win. Like, even when he hit the Styles Clash, like, they didn't really pop. And then, like... It was almost like shock and dismay. Like when Okada didn't kick out, it was sort of like when uh, when Undertaker got the streak broken. Like people were just kind of like quiet. <laughs> yeah, people weren't expecting that. I think there was a little bit of a pop because he hits the bloody Sunday before the Styles Clash. So also that's kind right. Of, kind of a throwback to Prince Devitt. So I think there's a little bit of pop for the bloody Sunday. But yeah, then he hits the Styles Clash one, two, three, and then, yeah, that kind of that that, you know, awkward silence of, like, did this guy just really beat our champion? It's, uh, it's, it's such a, a different look from when, say, someone like Jay White, you know, defeats Tetsuya Naito for the Intercontinental now, or, or, or even when Jay White won the IWGP. I mean, like, the, this whole year, this past, you know, 2019 was all about Jay White winning in big spots and, like, leaving the crowd upset. Um, and like, that's, that's the real reaction that they were probably hoping for with this angle. Um, and it just, they hadn't, 
they hadn't had the chance to build up AJ. And I don't know what the time frame was. I don't know if they knew they had two years with him or if they knew they thought he was going to be there for a long time, you know, when he came in. So I, I got to wonder if they were just like, let's get everything we can out of this American star and see if we can kind of grow this company um, overseas and get some, you know, get some buzz going. So, um, you know, it's, an, it's, it, it's such a different look as to what kind of that leader of the bullet club looks like now. And like the, the crowd reaction um, is, is quite different. Well, the moment is so meaningful because, you know, they basically only had a year with Prince Devitt at the helm. And while he was pushed very heavily and given a lot of accolades, the one thing that he was never able to do was win the IWGP heavyweight champion. And so this win kind of, uh, legitimized the Bullet Club in the eyes of the audience, you know, because at that point now they've got a leader who truly, you know, can be seen as a top guy. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they knew that they only had a limited time with him. Uh, you know, we we don't know the specifics on the contract negotiations, but it, I believe at the time they were mostly signing guys to like one, two-year deals. And who knows, maybe they thought we don't have five months to build this guy up as a credible challenger. We're going to just go with him, um, which was a risky proposition because ultimately in the early goings of, of AJ's run, he wasn't so well received by the crowd until like say the G1 climax, when he started to really endear himself to the audience because of the performances he put in. So, I mean, Jeremy, you got a rundown here. I think uh, you can kind of fill in the spaces before we get to, you know, the G1 and all that. Yeah. So he wins the IWGP title here, beats Okada. So with that victory, he becomes the sixth Gaijin champion in the title's history and the first American champion since Brock Lesnar in 05. Then we go to May 17th, Style successfully defends the title in a three-way match against Okada and Michael Elgin at the War of the World show, the uh, New Japan Ring of Honor co-produced show. And that match is up on New Japan World, and I think it's up on Ring of Honor YouTube also. Um, pretty interesting match there. Then we move uh, to May 25th, they're at Yokohama Arena. AJ defeats Okada again for a second time here in his second uh, title defense. Then we move over to uh, July, and so where AJ would uh, suffer his first loss in New Japan, July 21st, where he was defeated by Okada in the first match in the 2014 G1 Climax. And out of his nine remaining matches in the tournament, Styles only lost one, but he failed to advance to the finals due to the loss against Okada in the head-to-head match. So that 2014 G1 was kind of a real, like you mentioned, breakout moment for AJ Styles. Now, aside from that, um, AJ is getting ready to kind of drop the title. And um, I kind of gathered some notes here. So, I mean, um, from a business standpoint, during his first title run, um, they announced that Fukuoka was a sellout uh, with like 7,500. Or they, they announced it was a sellout. But from what I understand, and don't shoot the messenger, they say that that was a fake uh, inflated number, that it actually wasn't a sellout. Uh, Yokohama Arena, they booked that, uh, and it holds 15 to 1700, and they announced it as 7800. It apparently did less than that. Uh, they booked the Cebu Dome, which holds over 30,000. They announced it did 18, and they did less than that. And then, uh, with Sumo Hall, they did they, you know, it holds 11,000. They announced it did 91, and again, 
they did less than that. So like at the time it was pretty well known that new Japan was doing what was inflating their numbers, which was a co- pretty common practice. It seems right now they they're less prone to actually do that. Cause they're actually selling the buildings out. But from a business standpoint, um, they were talking about like Kidani, maybe even like losing his job because of how business was, you know, running with AJ at the top of the company. Um, so like, his first title run from like a commercial standpoint was seen as like a flop. But with that being the case, every single show during the G1, because of his performances, like you start to hear the crowd, you start to hear like an undertow. So like there was a building like, uh, you know, support for him and, and almost endearment because of the kind of performances they put in, including the Minoru Suzuki match, which ended up being the uh, wrestling observer, like match of the year. So like his first title run commercially, like, was pretty much not successful. Uh, But even with that being the case, the performances he put in ended up endearing him to the crowd to where by the time the second uh, title run comes around, business is really like turned around quite a bit. Uh, So it's it's just real interesting because there are some people who can look at that and be like, they didn't draw well, he didn't do good. But then you look at like the groundwork that was laid for like, say, Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks and the rest of, the bullet club and what ended up happening, you know, bringing in Jericho and Mox and all that, like none of that happens if they didn't take that gamble with, uh, with AJ Styles. So it, it's very, very interesting. Those numbers that he did during the first title run. I think it's interesting that things heated up uh, business wise when he, his kind of adversary becomes Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Okada at this time too. Cause Tanahashi was like the, that torch hadn't quite been passed to Okada just yet. Um, it happens uh, about a year after AJ has come in or a little less than a year after AJ comes in. So, um, you know, you, you, you build a, a little bit of a, you know, quick build program with Tanahashi and all of a sudden AJ is, you know, he's a hot commodity and, and business is getting, getting hot. So, um, you know, I think, I think the context of, of AJ coming in, and challenging Okada, who, you know, the crowd wasn't necessarily fully behind yet. And then he transitions over to Tanahashi. I mean, they, that's two big, big, big programs right off the bat for this guy, um, both with the heavyweight title involved. Um, and from there, you know, they've got they've got a star on their hands. Yeah, and I think, um, well, I know for a fact, so they had two matches previous to this run. They had one in TNA that Tanahashi or that AJ Styles had won. And then they had a match in Japan like a year or two later in like, Oh, Oh six or Oh eight, something like that where Tanahashi beat AJ Styles. So they're like one and one in the series. And then on the last night of the G one, this so the G one finals, both men are out of the tournament. I believe Hiroshi Tanahashi beats AJ Styles to set up their King of pro wrestling match. Yes, that's exactly what happened. So, um, and all, Every every Tanahashi AJ match, and we're going to talk about one, you know, in particular, in a little bit later. But every Tanahashi AJ match after AJ is actually on the New Japan roster is like just a banger. Yeah, I love AJ and Tanahashi's chemistry, and yeah, these guys just had some excellent matches together. And so that, that takes us to October thirteenth, twenty fourteen, King of Pro Wrestling. AJ would lose the IWGP title to Tanahashi in his third defense there. Um, and it was just a great matchup. And, you know, like you mentioned, Josh, business is bad. So go back to the guy that's still the ace, Tanahashi. 
let's put a strap on him. Let's try and get business back up and go forward from there. Yeah. I also think uh, Okada winning the G1 and then planning to run Tokyo Dome with those two guys also had a, a part to do in that, but absolutely. But um, controversy is what comes next when it comes to AJ Styles. And, you know, Jeremy, tell us about that. <laughs> yeah. So then we move on to January 4th, 2015, Wrestle Kingdom 9. In the Tokyo Dome, AJ Styles defeats the Stardust Genius Tetsuya Naito, and I'll see. Oh, I, w- I was talking about when he broke Yoshitatsu's neck. <laughs> oh. Yeah, you you skipped that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I think that's that's actually kind of important um, to talk about because AJ's run in New Japan was peak. Um, it was kind of the peak time when people were asking about w- whether the Styles class should be like a legal maneuver, just right. like in, in pro wrestling. And there was just so much conversation about that. So um, do you guys remember that? Do you, um, yeah, I do do you have thoughts about that? Yeah. So yeah, Yoshitatsu, he was kind of doing the, you know, the bullet club hunter gimmick and he uh, stopped Jeff Jarrett from interfering in the King of Pro Wrestling match which allowed Tanahashi to win. And so it was kind of his like life goal, his character's goal to kind of go after the Bullet Club. And I do remember him breaking um, Yoshitatsu's neck and just kind of the the heat that came from that. And I remember all discussions, yeah, is the Styles Clash dangerous? Is it not? And I'm like, man, I've seen um, AJ hit the Styles Clash for so many years now without injuring anybody. Like, I don't think it's dangerous. He just did bring break Yoshitatsu's neck. If it's safe enough for Michelle McCool, it's safe enough for AJ Styles. He did have like three or four like really risky like botches of that of that, and it's usually not on AJ to be honest. I mean, all AJ does is fall forward, um, but it's such a counterintuitive move to take because right. you actually move your neck back versus tucking your chin. Um, right. So you know, I think it was people. Uh, you know, people saw three or four kind of scary moments, whether it was truly like, inju- you know, he truly injured Yoshitatsu. But from there, a couple of um, couple of awkward moments with um, Kojima and Lionheart and um, somebody else. Someone, Rod- in Ring- someone in Ring of Honor took it bad. It was Roddy. Oh, yes, right. Yeah, Roddy. Yeah. So, like, there was a lot of people not taking this move right. Um, so it, you know, it turns out that, um, you know, it, it was kind of distracting to, to the finish of his match because in Japan, like this, this move is now after Yoshitatsu's next broken, this move is now like protected, like the, like, like the one winged angel where like you hit, you get hit with the styles clash and you're, you're done. So I don't yeah. think, I don't think anyone ever kicked out of it in Japan. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Protected move, uh, really made AJ look strong there. So, yeah, we kind of get the seeds planted there with that, you know, Yoshitatsu-AJ feud, and Yoshitatsu would kind of um, kind of go on to kind of be a thorn in the Bullet Club's side in the remaining of his run in New Japan. Um, so that, that takes us to the Tokyo Dome. Uh, AJ defeats the Stardust genius Naito. Um, and I, I re-watched this match because I hadn't watched it since the initial running of Wrestle Kingdom 9. It's just so interesting just seeing Stardust genius Naito and just how he was not quite over to the point he is today and um, just how AJ Styles kind of definitively kind of beat him there. Yeah, that's a uh, kind of an underrated match. I think it 
obviously given it slotting in uh, on the card, it wasn't intended to necessarily be like uh, a top showcase necessarily because it's sort of like in the middle of the undercard. But at the same time, it, it's a really good match, but it's almost a vehicle to put AJ over and kind of like reestablish him because he gets, I don't know, 70% of the, the offense it feels like, and he wins so cleanly with a – what that's the one where he wins with the super uh, – Styles clash off the second rope, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, but that's kind of like what reestablished him going into 2015 and sort of was like what the genesis of like Naito going in Gobernable. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the next day, New Year's Dash, um, this is where AJ would kind of get back into the IWGP heavyweight title picture. He pins Tanahashi in an eight man tag, setting up a title match with them at the new beginning in Osaka. And on February 11th, AJ would defeat Tanahashi to win the IWGP title again and start his second reign. And then he would have his first defense lined up at April 5th at Evasion Attack against the New Japan Cup winner, Kota Ibushi. And so this was the match that I selected for us to review, AJ Styles versus Kota Ibushi from Evasion Attack 2015. So what do you guys think about this matchup? You know, I'm a I'm a I'm big Kota Ibushi guy. Um, this was his first AWGP Heavyweight Championship opportunity, um, and the you know the match is good. It's a lot of Kota's um, kind of signature stuff. Um, you know, with a you know with AJ versus with people we had seen it before. So um, it's it, I. Kind of similarly to the Okada match, like I enjoyed it. I think it was well worked. I think AJ was really in his groove here. Um, but I, you know, I prefer Ibushi now, where like you get a little bit of that murder Ibushi coming through, um, and he just he didn't I, he didn't have that fire right. But he had just put through a really nice run uh, through the New Japan Cup, and. Um, he he was someone that clearly New Japan wanted to invest in um, Ibushi. That is, and you know, with that said, it was it was it was a well worked match. It was very fun to watch. Um, I just like like the fan in me just wanted Ibushi to just like <laughs> take the reins and go. Even though I knew, I mean, I knew what the outcome was, right? Um, but man, I just I wanted I wanted a little more out of out of Coda, and I you know I think AJ you know, could have been like really a top notch. Um, like, and honestly, if they went and did the match now, those two guys get in the ring now and, and go after it, I think it would be like a five-star classic. Right. So um, I think Coda was just not quite in that like main event level at the time. Yeah. Yeah. You, oh, can, ahead, Jerry. I was gonna say, you can clearly see, you know, we talked about this last week on, we were talking about Will Ospreay and his run in the best of super juniors and, you can see the growth from the Taguchi match to the Shingo match. Well, I think the same thing here of Kota Ibushi. Kota Ibushi is still an excellent pro wrestler here, still a freaky athlete and doing a lot of really cool stuff. Um, but you definitely see, compared to this match to, you know, 2018, 2019 Kota Ibushi, 2020 Kota Ibushi, you see a, a more well-rounded performer. Yeah, I um, I think the pacing here... Uh, was just a little questionable um it, it's by no means a bad match it's actually if you go online it 
Dave Meltzer gave it four and three quarters. It's like one of the highest rated AJ matches of all time. Um, but I think it's one that on rewatch five years later, it doesn't quite hold up to the expectations that, that I had for it. Um, and if Jeremy hadn't picked this, I was actually going to pick this just because Kota Bushi was like the next really great challenger from AJ's run that wasn't, you know, Tanahashi or uh, <laughs> or Okada. So, and also the historical aspects here with uh, Kenny Omega being the second on the outside. So like this was almost the one that I picked. But, um, you know, you kind of what you kind of mentioned there, Chris, is, you know, Abushi hasn't quite worked up to this level. Like, yes, he's had the great Nakamura match. And like, yes, he's starting to like break out. But there when you compare the two, Abushi might be the, the more accomplished athlete at this stage of their careers, but AJ is the more well-rounded and high-level performer of the two. And so, like, they're kind of wrestling at his pace. They're kind of wrestling. He's, like, dictating everything, and he kind of gets most of the offense in the match. And um, I think they really, to be honest, there's always been a big debate as to whether this invasion attack match or the one that they had in the G1 later in the year is better. And I gotta say, I always thought this was the better match, but now I'm in 2020. I'm inclined to think that their G1 match actually stands out to be the better match. Yeah, watching this match, kind of to agree with you, Josh. I did. I definitely felt, you know, yeah, this match, you know, it's you know, Melzer Gear 4.75, one of the more kind of acclaimed matches, and to me, it's just a little bit notched down of I don't know what it was, you know, watching it five years later. Um, I mean, it's still an excellent matchup, but I just think compared to what we've seen the last couple of years, it doesn't quite hold up to the same level. I do, I do like the historical significance as kind of the next phase of of where the Bullet Club is going, though, because um, this is really where we start to see the tie-in with Kenny Omega. Um, obviously, his history with Coda and um kind of a little bit of dissension right a little bit of that how is he really supposed to feel about this um as as aj gets the win so it is that kind of long-term storytelling that um new japan is very good at or very good at um capitalizing on so you know you see a little bit of of kenny omega having second thoughts about who you know, his excitement for his Bullet Club leader winning the match. So um, it does kind of, you know, transition the, the storyline forward, too. Yeah. yeah. So, and, go ahead, Josh. I, I was, I was going to say, you also see something unique here in that a lot of uh, AJ Styles' early big matches, he especially title matches, he's got the full Bullet Club with him. He's got all the goons and everything. And then in this match... It's just him and Kenny. And then by the time we get to the next match that we're going to review, which is towards the latter end of his run, there's nobody with him. So you kind of see like the, that, what you mentioned there, Chris, kind of just the uh, where the Bullet Club would be going. Because I think, you know, with Kenny's leadership, he kind of took some of those cues from AJ in that sense as well. Yeah. And um, I love there's just kind of subtle camera shots every so often to Kenny as AJ was kind of working over Kota Ibushi, and, you know, nothing too, you know, over the top. Like, they weren't cutting to him every five seconds, but definitely 
occasionally kind of coming to him, you know, the, the, the announcers w- would mention like DDT and Golden Lovers. And definitely they were playing up that, you know, Kenny, you know, who's kind of Kenny backing up here? Is he, you know, how's he feeling? Like you're mentioning, Chris, he's c- kind of conflicted here. His, you know, best friend, his Golden Lover tag team partner is facing his faction leader here in a very important matchup. And, you know, overall, like, one thing I did love about this match, there was just a lot of great um, counters between these guys. Um, just a lot of great, great innovative counters. And obviously probably the best one is the one that comes at the finish where, you know, Kenny distracts Ibushi on the top turnbuckle and he still goes for the Phoenix Splash and then AJ catches him into the Styles Clash. I love a good catch into the Styles Clash. Like it's, it's like a it's like an RKO. It's a Styles Clash out of nowhere. Yeah, it was yeah, it was beautiful. Um, and yeah, all throughout the match were some other kind of great uh, counters, a lot of great bumps. I mean, t- uh, the the beginning AJ uh, drops Kota uh, with a German on the floor to the outside, which is pretty nasty looking. So these guys are working really stiff. A lot of great counters. A lot of fast paced action. Yeah, it's one of those things where, like, at this point, aside from, like, a Phoenix Plex, you know, Kota Bushi's ultimate, like, finisher is this Phoenix Splash, and if he lands that, like, it's a pretty much done deal. And, you know, it's that moment that we've talked about for years, you know, uh, Abushi goes to the top, AJ's laid out after a last ride, and then Kenny just jumps up on the apron, and, like, you think he's gonna, like hit the ropes and, and crotch this guy or push him or, or grab his foot or do something, but he doesn't, he just looks at him and they just stare at each other. And then Kenny backs off. And like that one moment of hesitation, like just that, that look, that stare, that glance is enough to cost Ibushi everything. And it's, uh, it's like one of, even though like, I don't think the match holds up to the lofty levels that we thought it did back then. It's still really great. But this moment's like an all-time moment uh, for storytelling in New Japan. Yeah, it's definitely part of the thread of where we've ended up even today. Um, and and it was the beginning of uh, New Japan really recognizing and using the Kenny and Kota Ibushi um, history and like just leveraging it because they had them both. So um, and then they, you know, they stretched that out for four years as a, a great all-time classic pro wrestling story. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, any final thoughts here on this uh, Bushi AJ match? I I think the match is awesome. Yeah. I think it's really good. I just, I, I would love to see them go back at it again. I don't know. I don't think we're going to get that opportunity. Um, but I think you, that they you don't both... think AJ's washed. <laughs> I think I, I think you put AJ in the ring with Kota Ibushi right now, and he's gonna he's gonna have a, a better match than he had with the Undertaker. You know what the funny Impossible. thing is, Kota That was a five star classic, sir. Kota Ibushi would probably want to have a great uh, boneyard match with that's AJ, true. AJ, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's actually what we're gonna get now that I've put it out in the universe. Um, no, like, I don't. I don't he was I don't like, think... I don't understand why there wasn't a more fireworks in this match. <laughs> yeah. I was like, where were the kaiju's at? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, overall great match up here. If you have not seen this match, definitely uh, check this out this week from uh, Amazing Attack. So AJ wins here, kind of moving on. He has a five-month title reign, um, and it would end with his second defense on July 5th. 
at Dominion, where he faces Kazuchika Okada and Osaka Joe Hall. So Okada beats him, gets the title back. And then from there, we go into AJ's second G1. So from July 20th to August 14th, AJ's in the 2015 G1. Um, at the final day, he has a chance to advance from his block, but he loses to Hiroshi Tanahashi to cost him a spot in the finals, giving him a final record of six wins and three losses. So that's the next matchup we're going to talk about here. Is this A Block's final, AJ Styles versus Hiroshi Tanahashi? And Josh, this was your pick. Yeah, I, I picked this match for a few reasons. Um, there's there's a lot of really great AJ Styles matches in this run. Obviously, with us just doing three matches, we can't cover everything. And I mean, I initially was inclined to do Nakamura and AJ Styles because I was like, oh, Chris did the beginning. I should bookend it. Uh, or I was like, oh, I should do you know the Dominion match. But then I was like, we already did Nokata. But then I remembered like, Aside from um, Okada, like his most storied rival in New Japan during this run was Tanahashi in their final match, which in my opinion is their best match, was this G1 Climax 25A block final. And while it got a lot of praise, as often is the case, um, it kind of got overlooked, I would say, a little bit just because the G1 is full of so many great matches in such a short amount of time. Sometimes matches just kind of go by the wayside with the the way things happen, you know, and this match was kind of preceded by a fantastic Nakamura Okada match and then that Tanahashi uh, Nakamura final, which was like match of the year, like type level, kind of like made this a little bit forgotten. But um, this match just really, I think, is awesome. And in fact, this past week they came out with a, uh, thing on New Japan, it was like my best. They're doing that series, my best finishes, and I didn't even see that till today. I was, I didn't even know that this was the case. But uh, when they asked Tanahashi what his best match finish was, he was like, "The G1 final from uh, G1 Climax 25 A Block against AJ Styles," which is like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and um, th- yeah, and he just talks about how awesome the fi- the finishing sequence between him and AJ is. And I mean, what did you guys think? Had you guys seen this? I mean, what were your thoughts? I love this match. Um, I think that, you know, Tanahashi is the perfect opponent for AJ. Um, I think that they they had a lot of respect for each other. They had a lot of history with each other, even just working with each other a couple times before AJ was part of the New Japan roster. I think that was really helpful to their chemistry. Um, and, you know, also, like, I'm always going to have a little bit of an extra bias for G1 matches just because, like, it's it's a different kind of stakes, right? So it's not a title. It's not something you can ever go back and fix, right? Like, if you don't win these G1 matches in this year's G1, you're not going to win this tournament. And, right. And so, like, I I think that every match in the G1, you know, not to say that they're higher stakes than an IWGP match, but, like, you add it all together and it's so heavy, right? So like, and especially when you get to these kind of block final nights too, like, you know that there was a groundswell towards this match. And like, you know, to my knowledge, like everyone really thought Tanahashi was going to win this, win the block. 
um there wasn't much question about it but you know then you put aj in there and they go 28 minutes and kind of tease a draw and you know it's it's just <laughs> so it's like g1 matches and and even and any any of the tournament matches so best of super juniors tournament matches too like any of the, the block tournament matches like i'm always gonna i'm always gonna enjoy them a little bit more just because of how i look at and and appreciate the effort that goes into those tournaments so this was really fun to watch i love all the counters i love them trading finishers you know i love seeing tanahashi do the the styles clash and aj do the high fly flow like at the towards the end or, or attempt to do the high fly flow at the end it was just really fun to watch this was the best match we watched for this for this show for sure definitely i love this match this was the first time i watched this aj tanahashi match it was Phenomenal. Um, pardon the pun there, but yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I want the full five on this match. I I love just the, the storytelling with both of them attacking each other's knees. You know, AJ trying to set up the, the calf killer and Tanahashi trying to set up his uh, clover leaf and hitting the dragon screws and um, the selling throughout the match and Tanahashi hitting the high fly flow to the outside and AJ barely getting back in at 19. Um, yeah, that, that was great. Um and like you mentioned, Chris, the great counters and them doing each other's finishers was um, excellent there. And, and just the closing sequence between these guys. Yeah, everything about this match was just excellent. And personally, I think I like Tanahashi and AJ matches more than AJ and Okada. And I would say that Tanahashi was his best opponent in his run in New Japan. Well, I, I it depends on what, what criteria you use. If you talk about cumulative like uh or not cumulative but like um average like quality of match then yes it's probably tanahashi because every match they had was great but if you want to talk about the peaks i will say this just for fun we're not reviewing it i went back and watched that dominion match it's better than this it actually is like my girlfriend didn't think so she loved this match where she actually watched these matches me because she's a big aj styles fan and she's pretty convinced this is the best one, <laughs> but uh, but the Dominion match uh, is just really really extra special, like it is, um, which is unfortunate because they had a another match in October, which is great, the King of Pro Wrestling match, but it doesn't live up to that Dominion match. Um, but you know, with this one here, you know, some of the things that we we talked about earlier in this review project is like the way the crowd reacted to AJ, and it's like it started off negligible it's pretty like heavy um you know with the match with uh abushi but by the time this a block finals comes around i would say these are the loudest reactions he's getting which is kind of shocking because it's the a block of the g1 final and they didn't really sell it out i mean you can see a lot of the boxes are still visibly not full but the crowd is like at a max like just voice capacity like they're killing themselves to like put over the both of these guys performances um and yeah aj aj and tanahashi they tell a fantastic story this is something that is great in a vacuum it's great as part of their series and my final thoughts on it are basically this is like one of the reasons i picked is because after this this is like really the last like I'm in the main event. I'm one of the big four guys. I'm being pushed as like a top guy sort of deal for him because had he won this, then he would have like definitely gone on a main event at like wrestle kingdom. And like, 
sure, he had the IC match with Nakamura. It was a dream match, and he had a title match against, uh, you know, Okada. But everyone kind of knew what the, the the handwriting was on the wall for AJ Styles at at that point. This was kind of like the last hurrah for him in a certain sense. And not only that, it's the last match that him and AJ or him and Tanahashi are probably ever going to have against one another, which makes it very historically significant from that standpoint as well. Yeah. And um, as, we, as we talk about the, the crowd reactions, you know, I did watch a couple of the other a block matches from this year with AJ. I watched the Shibata match and I watched the Kota Ibushi match. And you can see that in the beginning of the matches, yeah, the crowd's kind of behind Shibata. They're behind Ibushi. They're behind like the, the native new Japan guy. But as both of those matches go on, the crowds can't help themselves but to get behind AJ and cheer AJ throughout the match. Also, just because of how great he is in those matches. And we see that in this match as well. Obviously, the crowd's really behind Tanahashi, but they're also uh, behind AJ. And you kind of get a split crowd throughout the match here. Dude, you picked like two of his best uh, G125 matches. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those are, I mean, you picked the good ones for sure. You picked the good ones. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I everything I was reading is that like right before AJ started the 2014 G one, he was really excited to work with Tenzan. Um, so I went and watched both of his matches against Tenzan in the, in the, in the G ones. And like, you can tell they're he's just, good. He's a super motivated AJ, you know, like <laughs> he, like for whatever reason. And like, it's probably because that's when he started watching new Japan is when Tenzan was, was, you know, at towards the top of the, towards the top of the card. But like, such a weird thing to like look at a roster that has Tanahashi and Okada and you know who, whoever else on it Nakamura for that matter right I mean like so many like that's Ibushi Naito like all these guys and he's saying he he wants to go work Tenzan and like that that's AJ right and that's AJ with his kind of historical significance too so I went and watched those matches and like it's just so it's cool to see someone who's just motivated to carry a match with um, someone who's probably past their prime Bro, you know who else he worked super hard with uh, and had a great match with was Togi Makabe. It's got to be Makabe. I was th- I'm looking at the list right now, and I was like, he's going, he's going to say Makabe. He worked so hard in the Tenzan and Makabe matches. It's like they're like some of the greatest carry jobs in New Japan history. <laughs> Nobody's uh, carrying Togi Makabe. Him and Makabe have like a great match. It's kind of funny. <laughs> uh, no bump Makabe. Uh, one other spot I want to point out this match before we move on I did I like the spot where uh, Red Shoes is taken down by Stinger Splash and then AJ Lowe's blows Tanahashi but then Tanahashi Tanahashi Lowe's blows him back yeah so we had no bull club interference but there was still a ref bump and AJ tried to cheat a little bit but it still backfired on him because Tanahashi Lowe blowed him too so that was great and and ultimately the story is you know when AJ has outside interference as great as he is he can win matches, but because he's an evildoer, when he's facing the top baby faces straight on one-on-one, he doesn't have what it takes to beat him, which is the classic universal story of wrestling, good versus evil. And, like, that's the case here. And Tanahashi prevails and, you know, goes on to Wrestle Kingdom. And, you know, AJ goes along his way. He never won the G1, even though he came close twice. Yeah, And it's really a shame that AJ then took the low blow and – created a finisher for himself at uh, WrestleMania against Shinsuke. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. 
So uh, after this excellent matchup, we move on to King of Pro Wrestling, October 12th of that year, where uh, Styles received a rematch for the IWGP title against Okada, but he failed to win the title back there. Then in November, Styles would enter the IC title picture by challenging Shinsuke Nakamura to a match. Uh, he was supposed to be in the World Tag League that year, but he had to pull out due to a back injury. He's supposed to team with Yujiro Takahashi. And remember, around this time, there was a lot of talk about AJ's career and whether he was going to be done or not due to how severe the back injury was. He had to retire. Yeah, there was a, a lot of talk about him potentially retiring and. He he had that really great match with uh, Jay Lethal to close out his uh, Ring of Honor run too, like yeah, uh, final, final battle. battle. And uh, yeah, everyone was talking about how he was done, and I was like, I don't know. So then he comes back to action for the Tokyo Dome, January fourth, twenty sixteen, Wrestle Kingdom ten, where he faces off with Shinsuke Nakamura for the IC title. And loses that match with Nakamura, one of his best matches in New Japan. So it's a great, you know, dream match. If you haven't seen that match, it's another one to kind of go out of your way to check out. And that was another, it's awesome. another awesome match there. And then hours after that match, it was reported that AJ had given his notice to NJPW and that he was leaving the promotion and signing with WWE. And then AJ would make his final appearance for NJPW um, at New Year's Dash, where the Bullet Club turned on him, and Kenny Omega would become the leader and take the reins from there. Yeah. Yep, and that's all they wrote for AJ and New Japan. Um, I liked that he got a, a write-off, though, um, as compared to what happened the next time a Bullet Club leader <laughs> left. <laughs> um so that was, I mean, it, you know, he came in on a hot angle, um, building, building himself as a star and he left on a hot angle, um, you know, leaving a, a bigger star behind him with Kenny Omega. So I, I, I think that is to be, uh, admired. The write-off yeah. was Kenny losing to Tanahashi. That was a write-off. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting. Um, we talk about how this company is so fantastic at building stars and, you know, AJ Styles is a case in point. You look at him, we talked about how, you know, he, when he left TNA, there was no interest from WWE whatsoever. And by the time he was done, um, not only killing it on the indies, but making a huge name for himself in New Japan and, you know, hot off the, the uh, tails of this Wrestle Kingdom main event, he suddenly, on the main roster, keeping his intellectual property, keeping his name and bypassing developmental entirely and debuting in the, you know, the Royal rumble. Like it's kind of crazy. And then having bangers with John Cena. Oh yeah. Those Cena matches were excellent. They were good. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I can't tell if Chris is being serious or not. (laughs) No, I am. I am. Okay. Like I, uh, I've got a weird soft spot for John Cena too. Like I just kind of like him. Um, and I think when he was putting on, you know, when he, when him and AJ were working together, they like, you got a lot of effort from Cena and I think AJ had something to prove that he could come in and do that. So, um, it was a great first that I think that was a really good, like first run for AJ. So yeah, totally serious. No, it's funny because, uh, the way you, 
the way you say things seriously is the way I say things facetiously. So it's hard <laughs> to tell, but, uh, but like, no, me and Jeremy are longtime spores of like, we've been on like the Cena train for years and years and years, like, you know, and, uh, yeah, those are some of the, even though the funny thing is that Royal Rumble match they had in what, 2017. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're totally doing like a new Japan style finish at the end. Mm-hmm. of that match. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, those, those, those Cena, um, are those AJ's best matches in, in WWE? Probably, yeah. Yeah, that and the Roman matches. The Roman matches are great. I think the Cena matches are better. Yeah. Yeah, This and the Cena matches were hot, too. I mean, like, the crowd, you know, WWE actually had crowds that reacted to things kind of appropriately at the time, too. So, um, yeah, those are those have got to be AJ's best WWE matches, unless I'm completely forgetting something. They shouldn't be considering who, who else is on the roster. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they are. Well, the, the one thing I, I wanted to point out here is like, you know, it's been something I've heard um, like Dave Meltzer say a lot. And, and it's funny because I've always disagreed with him to a certain degree. Like, even though I've been a, a, a longtime New Japan fan, just like a lot of people, this was kind of the the – era and period where my fandom was reignited and I started paying like a lot closer attention to what was going on. So to me, like the AJ Styles matches were like very revered, like, you know, very, very revered, especially that 2014 G one run and, you know, his, his title runs and everything. And then the past couple of years, you've heard like Dave say, and he's said this many times, like a, a, a widely held opinion that he has is he's like, you know, some of those matches that AJ had were so great back then but they wouldn't even be in the top 10 or top 20 matches of like the last couple years. And I've always been like, Dave is fucking wrong. He's lost his marbles. Like he doesn't remember. He's completely incorrect, <laughs> but now I'm going back and watching it. And, and you know what? I do kind of agree with him in a certain sense. I watch these matches and I remember them fondly and I'm like, but they aren't as good as the current working level today. But what I will say is I think, AJ was working at a higher level in 2014 than the majority of the roster was at that point. And his influence in 2014 and 2015 is what kind of led to the sort of working style that you see in new Japan in 2017, 2016, 2018. Like I'm not saying they wouldn't have got there, but you can see his like handprints all over like, you can see his influence because even a lot of these matches that we reviewed and some of the ones I watched, like he was already working at a higher level than a lot of the guys aside from like Tanahashi for the most part, he's working at a higher level than almost everybody on the roster already. Yeah. And I think AJ's whole run in new Japan was really like peak AJ styles style too. Like he didn't really change what he had been doing when he came to Japan Japan was just ready for what he was doing. Um, it, it was a really good fit. It was a really good fit from a style perspective, and it was a really good fit from um, an energy and effort perspective too. And like, even I, you know, recently I've had a couple of reasons to go back and watch AJ and TNA and and some of his really big, you know, big matches there. And like, you know, you look at you look at that run when AJ was young and really energetic and and willing to take, you know big risks and and really do some some really interesting new innovative stuff and then he brought that 
energy and that effort to Japan. And, and I think you're right. I think it rubbed off on uh, the rest of the roster. And then AJ, you see AJ get more and more, um, I guess I want to say like, like violent as, as his time in new Japan goes too. And I think that's kind of part of AJ's growth. Um, and I think that that, that's a kind of a cool evolution to watch too. Yeah. And I think part of that too, you know, he, I think he, he kind of had like a chip on his shoulder. He had a point to prove that I'm still yep. one of the best wrestlers in the world. You know, oh, WWE doesn't want me. TNA is lowballing me. Well, I'm going to show these guys, you know, why people have been, you know, raving about me for all these years and kind of goes in. And then, yeah, like you mentioned, he, he gets more aggressive. You know, he's a working heel. You know, majority of his career, he's been a baby face for the most part in that TNA run. And uh, towards the end there where he was turning heel, and we, we see the kind of, he started using the calf crusher, but from there, from New Japan, he really kind of, you know, dove into that heel persona, got more aggressive, used that calf crusher, the uh, submission hole, and kind of get a little bit more gritty with his work. Yeah, that was something, um, and I agree with you, Jeremy, that was something that Chris brought up that I totally wanted to remember, and I was going to forget, so I'm glad he brought it up. Even though, I don't think, I wouldn't say that in his time there, AJ got better because he was already at such a high level but he did get better at working the new japan style he didn't really alter too much of what he was doing but he was able to implement what he does within the confines in the context of their match structure like better by the time it was over but the one thing he did improve in and it's like the one thing that i can like marketably say like he got better at this was his strikes the way he would strike like they got so nasty by the end of his run there. <laughs> yeah. Well, he knew the guys he was working with could take it. I think, yeah. you know, he, and they, they built up that trust and he knew, he knew what he could take. Like the, he's tough as nails. Um, and then I think over time you see him figure out that everyone else that's there, it, you know, they're closer to his level than some of the guys he had been working um, on us soil. So we uh we have a few questions here from uh some of our listeners about AJ and then some other random questions. So first the AJ question. So first from Reddit user Tom twenty four, he says, Was his entrance into New Japan or his exit out of New Japan better? Uh in my opinion it was easily his exit. Um while I enjoy his entrance and I thought it was you know, you had this the shock and the surprise element to it and everything that was even more so (laughs) on his exit. I mean, yes, some people knew he was leaving, but I don't think everyone knew. And I don't think anyone expected it to be, you know, this turn from Kenny Omega of all people. Cause even though people thought like Kenny was going to be a star, it's like, it came from out of nowhere. Like you fucking turned on him and it's like, you got this junior and he cuts this scathing promo on him. And then, all his friends beat his ass. <laughs> the, the elite kick him out of New Japan into WWE. Like, it's kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be his exit. I mean, I, I, and the effects of his exit are still felt today. So, um, you know, his entrance was hot and he let, he he bookended his run um, pretty perfectly. And, and we've talked about it already, but like whether that was planned or... Um, happenstance, like it was well taken advantage of. Yeah, I agree with you guys. The exit was definitely better, and yeah, you know that that 2015 year, he just had a lot of great matches, and then just kind of building up to 
the Nakamura match. And like you mentioned, New Year's Dash, where he's, you know, getting booted out of the Bullet Club and, you know, being sent off to uh, WWE. Like, all that was just great. And just, you know, obviously, that led to the, the ascent of Kenny Omega and the Ry- Bullet Club getting even more popular in the U.S. and leading to, um, you know, the Western expansion of Bullet Club and, and New Japan. So, yeah, I think the, the exit of AJ Styles was definitely uh, better than the entrance. Yeah. So uh, next question here from Reddit user Just a Little Bear Zero One says, "If Styles never signed with the WWE, do you think he would have been the first Gaijin to win a G One instead of Kenny Omega?" No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think if if he wasn't winning it in fourteen or fifteen, even if he was still there, I don't think he's he was the guy. Yeah, it, it's hard to go back and play. Um, you know, what's it called? Uh, armchair Booker or whatever, you know, 2020s, hindsight, all that sort of stuff. But, I mean, look at all the people that they pushed and the programs that they pushed after he left. It's hard for me to imagine that they weren't going with Naito or Bushi or, you know, Okada and all that sort of stuff, like, or Omega. Like, it's just it, – it's really hard for me to think if it wasn't 2014 or 2015, it, was, it wasn't going to be his time. So, yeah, I don't think he was going to be the first guy. Here's what I will say, though. I think if he stays, Omega never becomes the first Gaijin winner, mm. most likely. Yeah, because he, he... I, I don't think without that vacuum it happens, unless maybe they booked it that way. But um, unless they knew way ahead of time that they're going to do it, I think him being there could have been a detriment and caused Omega to never win it. I think whether I think there's a chance that whether AJ was leaving or not, that angle was going to be the same at New Year's Dash. I like that. I, I could totally agree with that if that were to be the case. I don't know it to be, but yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know anything. Um, but I that wouldn't have that wouldn't surprise me looking back on it because I think it was time to transition. Yeah, there's kind of a shelf life on the Bullet Club leader gimmick, right? Like you can only you can only be that that person for so long and and be effective without it becoming kind of a a, a parody of itself. You don't so, say, Jay White. <laughs> <laughs> so you only get so much time to do that, and at some point you got to put someone else in that spot. And and AJ, given the respect he had gotten, um and built with, with the crowd as well as I'm sure the, the office and the wrestlers. Um, I think, you know, AJ could have defected successfully and, and gone back either, you know, probably just as a, uh, a man without an Island and just been an awesome wrestler. And, and he still would have been in, you know, a lot of title pictures and things of that sort too. And it, it would have been a really interesting run because you, then you get AJ versus the bullet cub um for for a little while there so i think that that would have been a really fun angle so i i don't doubt that that was at least on the table yeah it's, I, oh, go ahead josh aj goon he he usurps power from Minoru suzuki <laughs> <laughs> uh, i was gonna say it's always very interesting when you hear like the bull club interviews like the bucks and like marty and they always talk about and kenny like they always talk about you know one of the downfalls about being a part of the bull club or the elite is we have a lot of great guys in our faction that we never get to face off against. 
Um, so yeah, that would have been a very interesting scenario to see AJ against Kenny. AJ teaming up with maybe Tanahashi against the, the Bucks or whatever, and having AJ face off against those guys. That would, that could have been some good stuff. Here's the one thing I will say: if if Chris is right, then maybe we don't get Goto versus Omega in the G1 Finals. We get uh, AJ versus Kenny in the finals. I like both. I mean, that Goto match is phenomenal. The, but... the Goto match is phenomenal, but it's also like no one expected Goto to be in that match to begin with. Right. Right. But yeah, I, I agree with you guys. It's during that time period, clearly, I mean, the, the main money feud was Okada and Tanahashi and getting those matches at the dome. You need, you need the G1 to set up those wins. So I, I also think AJ, it was, it was almost like the, in a way, almost the wrong time because He's just, you know, they're stacking up. They're getting ready to push Okada, and Tanahashi's still hot, and there's still Nakamura, there's Naito. So there's a lot of guys he would have had a leapfrog over to potentially win a G1 during that time a- period. A- AJ was New Japan's Dean Ambrose. They're going to go with him in the in-between months, but he's not headlining WrestleMania. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next question here from Reddit user PSAN91. Who are some people currently on the NJPW roster that would like that you guys would like to see AJ have a dream match with? He says he personally would love to see AJ Styles versus Will Ospreay. Uh, the first name that comes to my mind is Shingo Takagi. Oh yeah, always. <laughs> <laughs> um, Zack Saber Jr. Mm. Well, well, they've wrestled before, and it was near five stars, and and Will Ospreay too. In Rev Pro, right? I, yeah, I think putting those matches on a big stage would be really interesting because I think they they could even be more too. But um, and, and those guys are so much better now too. Right, right. They've grown. I mean, I mean, Osprey is a different wrestler now than he was, you know, a year ago. Even, um, I mean, just look at his Instagram. He's a big boy now. Um, <laughs> I'm looking. I'm looking at a roster now. I mean, like, I think you know, a match of Hiromi would be very interesting. I was gonna say, I always want to see the juniors with guys like AJ. That kind of AJ is kind of a middleweight, you know. If you really kind of break it down, um, so like Hiromu, uh, El Fantasmo, Robbie Eagles, um. All the juniors, Ishii, all the juniors. Ryu Lee, <laughs> Ishii. I think what him and Ishii were in the A block together, right? Yeah. Or were they? I can't remember. I can't remember if he ever wrestled Ishii, but like, did they have a good match? Did they wrestle? I don't know. They didn't have a singles match. They've never had a singles match, have yeah. they? Not, God, new, I, not in New Japan, at least. God, I would kill for an AJ Styles Ishii match. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> So Hanare. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm serious. I want to see yeah. AJ, AJ bring up bring up some of those guys too. You know, I think yeah. that would be part of his role now. I mean, I think you have to do the Jay White match. Sure. The, the former, oh, former yeah. Bull Club leader against the current leader, especially with Jay White every once in a while busting out a Styles Clash in his big big matches. Bro, there's Kenta. I was gonna say, has AJ ever wrestled Kenta? That was my next one too. I don't know. I don't think they've ever wrestled. If they did, it would have probably been like early Ring of Honor, maybe. Or TNA. Yeah. Did, yeah. I don't know. I don't think they wrestled. Let me do a, uh, a cage match here. Yeah, Great audio. 
<laughs> pull up the. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, there's, match. there's like, obvi- obviously, the roster has uh, evolved since the time that he's been there. So I mean, there's a lot of really great matches. Uh, luckily, like you, like you know, those two matches do exist. The Will Osprey match, the Zack Saber match, they exist. They're really great. But yeah, I would love to see him in 2020, of course. Sonata. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> Sonata the chameleon, though, man. He, if he if he brings it, if he goes to AJ's style, he could be that. Could be okay. I'm just kidding. I like Sonata. Did you see Sonata got snubbed on the? I don't know. Maybe you guys talked about it last week. Sonata got skipped on the uh, the action figure line. I did yeah. see that. Yeah, I was going to talk about the action figures um, a little bit later in the news, but yeah, no Sonata. <laughs> No Sonata. They're coming out with him in, in Series 3, I think. That's what I heard. Series 2 is like LIJ, though. It's so funny. <laughs> there's no Shingo. No, there's, there's no Shingo. I don't know how you do Bushi and not Shingo, but it's probably because <laughs> masks. I don't know. Those, those well, I think they might, have been, they might have been working on these guys for a while. I was, yeah. uh, I'm was. i in a group chat uh, in Facebook that's like a New Japan uh group and i was like yo why is okada's uh iwgp title got like gold crust on it but uh naito's is all silver <laughs> <laughs> and they're like oh these are just concepts like they're not done they're gonna be finished and i was like oh i thought they were just like letting us know who the real was you know <laughs> uh next question here from josh number two he says what's the best match aj had in japan that nobody talks about uh I'll I'll say one I think. Uh AJ Styles versus Tetsuya Naito from the twenty fourteen G one. All right, I haven't seen that one. I have to go up go back and watch that one. Four and a half stars, easy. It's incredible. No one talks about it. I see I really like the Tenzan and Makabe carry jobs. I think that they're really fun to watch. Uh for me I Personally, I haven't had, heard a lot of people talking about this G1 match that we watched with Tanahashi. I feel like it kind of gets kind of washed with the, the Nakamura match and, and, and the Okada, you know, the King of Pro Wrestling match. But I don't hear a lot of people talking about it, and I think that match is phenomenal. Um, some of the ones you watched, Jeremy, the Shibata match, no one really talks about that. It's really good. Uh, what was the other one you said you watched? The Ibushi. Oh yeah, the Ibushi match. Uh, that's less heralded, even though I think it's better. Uh, do you think it's better after watching both? I don't know. I feel like they're almost on the same level. Okay, yeah, that's fair enough. I, I think I rated both of them the same, but yeah, I, I did see a lot of cage match comments and a lot of people that were like, "Yeah, the the Ibushi match is such a a way better version of the Invasion Attack match." Um, but I don't know. I, I thought they were about, about the same level. I'll throw one out there that no one talks about. Uh, it's not like I'm not saying it's a great, great match, but up until the up until the Osprey match, it was his best singles match. The Lance Archer G1 match from 2014 is really good. Yeah, I saw that one on there. I have to go back and check that out. I mean, Lance Archer always been so underrated. It, it, it's not it's not 20, 2019 Lance Archer, but it's still pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Lance Archer got better. <laughs> Next question here from EMJ does PR. Is what are AJ's defining matches as a Bullet Club leader? Which I think we just kind of talked about a lot of the matches that define him. Is there any other matches that we're kind of missing out here? I think the Minoru Suzuki match from the first G1. That match is awesome. Yeah, that match is great. I've seen that match. I think I think the Nakamura match, his final major singles match, is 
is really defining. Um, if I had to, if I had to knock like peg down one Tanahashi and one Okada match, it would be the Dominion match from 2015 and the A Block final. Those are like, in my opinion, the two best ones. Nice. And it also says, and a question for Samsa: Who's been the most successful leader of the Bull Club statistically, and what stats do you think are most relevant <laughs> for a faction leader? Personal success or success of the faction under their leadership? <laughs> wow, man, that's heavy. I, sh- I wish I would have looked at these questions. You should have sent this way ahead of time, Jeremy. <laughs> well, so I did pull AJ's win-loss um, in New Japan. So, like, during AJ's time, actually, on the New Japan roster, so, like, excluding the TNA um, offer matches, we'll call them, Um AJ was overall 53 and 26, uh, 53 wins, 26 losses. And then in singles, 21 and 10. Um, so AJ, AJ was remarkably successful. Um, you know, so far this year, uh, Jay White, well, 2020 is a little skewed, obviously. But in overall, Jay White's 7 and 10. And, and that, that lines up with his 2019, too, um, where he... Overall, the Bullet Club was not a winning faction, um, but when you you drill back into the singles matches, that's where you have some success. So, um, you know, with that said, yeah. So, 2019, Jay White overall was 53 and 67. So, like the workload's a lot heavier now, um, but overall, AJ's time as the Bullet Club, the Bullet Club was really successful. They were winning mm-hmm. a lot. You see a lot of championships on the on the Bullet Club side. You've also got like the Young Bucks and um, you got Carl Anderson and Gallows out over there, like you know, taking care of the tag division. So, I mean, ultimately, this this was probably the peak of the Bullet Club's like statistical in ring success. Because um, from here on out, they've been top heavy and then kind of fodder for the baby faces to um kind of overcome um you know the numbers game so and that that remains the same now so as for what stats are most relevant for a faction leader in a faction like the bullet club i think it's selfish and i think you know i think that the the top guy if the top guy is the champ and the top guy is successful then i think the whole faction probably feels that so um you know, AJ's run as a leader was a little bit different in that in that Bullet Club is really establishing themselves as a you know a, a quality you know quality group, quality faction in the ring, and and now they've kind of transitioned and just being weird bullies <laughs> and guys that won't give Gino uh, a tracksuit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, look look at the. Uh the promo that Kenny Omega cut on AJ Styles on this way out. He's like, you know, we paid you the big dollars. We made you a star. We paid you like a star. I starved myself to be a junior and you're a loser. You just fucking lose. (laughs) (laughs) And like, that's kind of what it is there. It's like, if you're not leading by, by example and winning and holding the top title, then you're not the top guy, you know? Yeah, and to your point, Chris, AJ's Bull Club, you look at the you know, their run, you had underneath, you had the Young Bucks as multiple-time junior tag champions. You had Kenny Omega as a junior heavyweight champion. 
You had um, Doc Gallows and Carl Anderson as the heavyweight tag team champions. Uh, these guys, Fale. yeah, Fale. Uh, Fale was an IC champion. IC, yeah. yeah. And you know what? I think Ujiro even held the Never title underneath them. As crazy as that sounds, I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah, I think his Never title run was with uh, in that early that AJ run. I just don't think they had a junior guy at the time. I don't think it'd be a little while before Marty showed up. Well, Kenny was well, junior. Kenny. Yeah. Oh, that's right. And Kenny was junior champion. So, I mean, yeah, they held all the belts. And yeah. I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure they held the uh, six-man tags, too. Why not? I'm sure. No, no one's going to look it up to verify. So. <laughs> I, I know that. Uh, I think AJ and the Bucks were a Ring of Honor six-man champs, maybe, at one point. AJ- AJ and the Bucks did win the six man tags. I think it was after I think it was once the Elite started is when they won it. But still, like, yeah, that's pretty I I would say obviously their their greatest popularity, quote unquote, came along once being the elite and all that stuff happened and once Kenny took over and everything of that nature. But their best their like greatest success is when AJ was in charge. That's when they're the most cohesive. That's when you saw them all on, you know, um, the screen together all the time like that that's the height of the bullet club and that's when they were growing i feel like there was a lot of people joining they um, were yeah so they're the bullet club babe <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they jeff jarrett jeff jarrett scott demore it's great <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah lots, lots of uh bullet club members coming in there uh so uh, next question here from Maserati. He says, based upon the early results of your poll, do you think the fans that were into Kenny went with him and aren't watching NJPW as much as if at all anymore? Because Jay White was higher, and while I like him a lot, he's pretty recent. So only really, really new fans haven't really seen his story. So it's odd he was higher. Like I understand Prince David and AJ as they were further in the past, but White is so recent. Hopefully that makes sense. Ah, it makes sense, and I think that's a great question, and I think he kind of answers on question honestly <laughs> i also think people want to hear about stuff that they're a little less familiar with so um but if you had a guess i think it boils down to this his question is why did jay white score higher than say kenny because jay white's more recent yeah yeah and that's what he's asking he's like why do you think that he scored higher than kenny I think the the interesting question here is, do you think that everyone who was watching New Japan for Kenny left and is now, you know, what he's really asking is, did they just transition over and start watching AEW? I would say there is a good portion. I mean, we, yeah. we've had listeners of our show tell us, like, it was a real struggle for us at first to keep listening to your show and stop watching, you know, keep watching New Japan. Like, all of our favorite guys, you know, Bucks, Kenny, they were all going to All Elite Wrestling. So I know there's a lot of fans that kind of just jump shit completely and kind of drop New Japan and mainly watch AEW. Yeah, I mean, I, I've i got to believe that that's, that is the case. And this has been, you know, a little bit of a challenge for, for New Japan to keep up. But then you got guys like Moxley coming in and... um you know, you still have the Jericho, the Jericho crew. So, yeah, I mean, I don't doubt that a lot of people failed on New Japan because of Kenny, but um, Kenny and, and the rest of the gang, for that matter. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, it's I don't think it's as extreme as as it may it may look. 
Yeah, and I think also keep in mind we only had a small subsect of fans even write into this uh, or vote. This was our first time ever doing this, so I don't know how many people knew. I think going forward, if you're listening and there's a certain subject, now you kind of know how it works. It's upon you to like go out there and vote and make sure the right people that you want to hear win, you know? Yeah, but honestly, I think our our listenership – Wanted to hear more about AJ than Kenny. Just like I was saying earlier, like we we've talked about Kenny plenty of times. You can go into the archives on socialsuplex.com or our Red Circle and listen to us talk about Kenny. We don't really ever talk about AJ. So they wanted to hear Chris talk about AJ. My <laughs> <laughs> um, dumb voice, right? <laughs> or whatever, whatever you said that one time. I was so insulted. Oh, I'd just be talking shit. Because <laughs> I'm jealous. You just didn't think I listened when I'm not on, right? <laughs> I, I, I know you don't listen. I know someone someone's out there snitching. They they sent you a voice clip and then... Snitch tag. That's what, yeah, that's what happened. <laughs> I will not confirm or deny. <laughs> uh, next question from Highest Fly Flow. He says... Not AJ style specific, but how would you compare NWO Japan to the Bullet Club? Can you even <laughs> compare them? Uh, I mean, I think they're extremely similar, to be honest. Uh, it's pretty much the Bullet Club was almost literally like a ripoff of NWO Japan. The only big difference is what kind of made the Bullet Club unique was that, and I, and you know what's funny? They say now that this wasn't intentional at all, but I think it to me, the way I remember it is that it was intentional was that they were all Gaijin and NWO Japan was not all Gaijin, although it had the heavy influence of, you know, the NWO from the West that influenced them and, and everything of that nature. But yeah, I mean, they're very similar. Yeah. I mean, Bullet Club is just better executed, I think though. Um, unless, I mean, Bullet Club didn't get watered down by the, weird splits in the u.s and and you know um things like that that the nwo did so um bullet club was able to stay like a a kind of a focused branding i guess if you if you want to kind of use that language so well you say that but then there was also bullet club elite and everything of that nature that kind of felt like a weird phase but uh no you're absolutely right even like team 2000 was like a split from nwo japan and it got weird right yeah, I think once you start splitting the factions up into, you know, splinters of the same group, then things start to get a little messy. I mean, if I start seeing, like, red, you know, Bullet Club wolf pack shirts, <laughs> then, you know, we'll know we have a problem. Yeah. Or, or, or you know, Latino Latino Bullet Club. <laughs> we'll the only way Ryu Lee as the leader. Yeah. <laughs> The only way that it works out if you have uh, a weird watering down of the uh, groups is if one of them turns into the second largest wrestling company in the world. Then it kind of works out. That's the only way. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Next question here from Wiz Factor says, what piece of merchandise is missing from the NJPW Global Shop that you would like to see added? Personally, you would like to see ELP Shades and Evil's Mini Scythe. I don't go on there enough to know. Are we talk which which uh, site is he talking about? The the new global shop. Oh, I mean, I would say personal opinion, like almost everything that's in the uh, 
on the regular domestic site is missing from the Western site entirely. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I was looking for like just a polo or just a cool shirt and you can't find most of them there at all. Or even just like, you know what I would like to buy? I would like to buy an authentic lion Mark shirt, like a lion Mark, just the red and white lion Mark shirt. I just want to buy the real one. And I bought one once from pro wrestling tees and then it came with a, ch- and it was printed on a champion's, like target shirt <laughs> and it had that weird champion stitching on the arm and it pissed me off. Cause I, I, I wasn't like, no one smartened me up to the fact that they print on just regular t-shirts. I didn't know that. So like, yeah, I want to buy an authentic new Japan shirt. I can't even do that. I think, uh, more track suits. <laughs> they Cause... sold all, they sold all of them out. Well, I bought them all. Um, <laughs> they are they are very comfortable, and um, I am now. Uh, I'm just gonna live in a tracksuit if I don't have to go to work. Yeah, I mean, you you look great in it, man. So listen, it is a it is a look. It's a it's a lifestyle, really, and you, you have to commit to it. And um, you know, my wife, uh, she likes to give me a hard time about it, but she, uh, you know, she's coming around on it. She must really love you to be like. She's like, around. she's like, huh? Tracksuit today, huh? And I'm like, <laughs> it's a lifestyle, okay? I, I live two lifestyles, okay? I own a Jeep Wrangler, and I now own tracksuit. So, this is it. Are do you have the uh, the Suzuki Goon one? Not yet. See, it's not on the global shop. Uh, the, the day it comes, you best believe Chris is going to be first in line. Dude, I'll throw down that whatever Hundo Hundo eighty whatever it is. <laughs> Uh, next question from uh, Dan Coffin. He says, "How do you think Tamatonga will do in a solo run? He's insinuating as eminent. So on Twitter, Tam has been tweeting a lot about going solo and that a solo run is coming. So what do you guys think about solo Tamatonga? Oh man, you know, um, there was a time where both me and Jeremy on this show were adamant." adamant that this guy needed to go solo that they needed to like give him a push give him an opportunity give him a chance but every g1 that he's been in comes and every year i get more and more disappointed and i'm not saying i don't believe in him entirely like i think he still could be you know a good performer i just never seen it so it's hard for me to believe in it what do you think chris you know, my boy Tamatanga is paying for some ad space on the Voices of Wrestling podcast <laughs> network, and um, he's got that new podcast with my my Chicago friend Ross Berman. So I'm pro Tamatanga. Um, I don't know; it's worth a shot, right? I mean, see what see what see what he wants to do. He's an interesting character. Um, I think that I think they could leverage that out, but like, it's so hard to change. Um, and pivot from tag to singles in New Japan, unless that's something you've already kind of mixed in, like Evil and Sonata. So, like, I don't know. I don't see a lot of those guys, like, having really successful singles runs after having, I mean, really, truly defining their careers by in, in the tag division. I mean, you've seen, like, Lance Archer, right? And, like, he's the outlier, Um so, but I mean, I'm down. I'm down to check it out, see what's up. I think that he's got the in-ring skill to do it, and he's got the attitude and the character work to do it. So, if he's put in position to be successful, I think he could have a good run. 
Yeah, and just positioning it, it might just be kind of weird. With obviously, you know, you got Jay White still a leader. He's obviously the guy that's going to be in the heavyweight kind of title picture. And then Kento would be your number two, who would be kind of being in that IC slash never position. So does he kind of fly up, to, you know, kind of compete with Kento there for title shots and and in the positioning for that IC and never title? Or maybe Kento goes after IC and goes after never. I don't know, but or I mean, we probably always forget about the u.s title that's true yeah actually i think that would be a good good slotting for him um especially at first i mean he's he's been pretty integral for the u.s uh the new japan of america expansion he's always on those tours um you know he runs the bullet club block party thing like that actually could be an interesting opportunity for him yeah, and I mean, every time we see him in a tag match, he really does stand out. And it makes me wonder, like, I don't know that he ever was intended to be strictly a tag team guy. I mean, he was kind of placed there out of necessity as he was learning. And then once his brother came along, it made all the sense in the world to kind of help him, bring him along. But at this point, six title runs later... Not a strong tag division, although we did talk, pre, you know, in the past about the changes that were planned with COVID and everything. I, we didn't get to see the full fruition of that, but I mean, what is left for God to do? So it's kind of like, um, you know, we're we're kind of in the same boat. Like we've always believed in Tamatanga, we've just always been let down, but they've never gone full on. We're going with this guy. He's a single star. Let's do it. So. Like, I'd be in favor of it. I'm just not necessarily completely buying it, but I would be glad to be wrong. Yeah, I think part of that, too, is the booking. Obviously, a lot of his G1 matches had a ton of interference, a ton of cheating, a ton of ref bumps. So clearly, he's not going to really, you know, get over to a top level with, you know, fans with, who hate that kind of stuff. So, Right, but I can't think of a single singles match he's ever had that I thought, was very good. I really liked the Kenny Omega match because he was cutting promos on Kenny the whole match, but that's like the one <laughs> memorable one I could think of. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can't. I can't think of anything. Either. I mean, he's had. I mean, and he's, he's been, been and he was in a lot of G ones. He's in been a in a lot of, of G ones. Yep. I was. I'm curious what would have happened in New Japan Cup. He was in it. Was he not in it? He, Am I recalling that incorrectly? I think Tangaloa. He's been in them before. Tangaloa was in it. That's right. That's what was surprising about yeah, that. Yeah, because uh, he was, um, his wife was getting ready to welcome their, right, their right, baby. Right. So, yeah. I mean, I guess it just remains to be seen. And I think uh, your, your suggestion, Chris, is probably the best way to go because it is kind of like, well, where does he fit? You don't want to see him just become like a, a lackey or something like that. You don't want to see, see him in like a Ujiro role or some crap like that. But the U.S. title makes a lot of sense, so I think that's good a good way to go. So then, what do you do with Tangaloa? Do you do you stick him with like Ujiro and keep him? He's in the out. Team? Nah, you got to bring in Hikuleo. Oh, uh, true. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. That's and then they call. can they can keep tagging. Yeah, there you go. I think and I then, actually just booked that. So God two point oh. And then ultimately, uh, Tamatonga becomes this generation's uh, Tenzon. From what from one great tag team to another. <laughs> that that was a that was a Tenkozi uh Choten reference. Sorry guys. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> <laughs>
All right. Um, last set of questions here from Kyle Martin from the Wrestling Squared Circle Facebook group. Uh, his first question, he says, a uh, question for Josh. Do you know what was with Kevin Randleman almost working for New Japan? Honestly, do you know what happened? Was Russo booking the territory? Was it a swerve, bro? Uh, no, I actually don't know anything about that. Uh, I know Kevin Randleman worked IGF. I know he worked Hustle. I know he worked All Japan. Um, he might have worked zero one. I don't, but he never worked New Japan, which is kind of weird because you would think he was wrestling around that time during the Inokiism period. Uh, but I've never heard any. I mean, I don't remember anything about him almost getting signed. I mean, do, do you guys know anything about that? I do not. Nope. No, no, no. So I mean, it's just I could look into it, but I don't. I don't know much about it to be honest. I'm sure there's stuff on the internet. Uh, his next question: Out of all defunct belts listed on NJPW's wiki, would you guys consider any of them worthless or irrelevant, or are any of, or are there any you guys would want to see revived? One can only hope for a return of the greatest eighteen club championship. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, do you guys have any background on the uh, defunct belts of New Japan? Nothing that I think is would be exciting to come back. I mean, I think, um, I think that they have a lot of belts. I yeah, think. and yeah. not, and that's not to say that any of them are irrelevant, right? We're obviously still talking through like scenarios for the never in the U.S. and all that, and like I think that all of the singles titles have a, a really good slot. Um, you know, I am of the opinion that the having two separate tag belts is silly and yeah amen like like that's that's where i'm at on the on the tag belts even though like i know that they all work different styles but they're still tag teams man like that's a good opportunity for wacky matchups and stuff like that and um other than that like i i think that um i don't i don't think i would be excited to see anything new introduced in the way of championships i mean Oh, go ahead, Jeremy. Yeah, one defunct title that you know we've talked about, Josh, that I think was kind of cool, but I don't think it would fit in right now is that U30 title where you had a title for guys who are 30 years and under. Um, I thought that concept was kind of cool, and you, you kind of, you know, seeing the young guys and, you know, building up that young division. But with, like you mentioned, Chris, there's so many titles that there is right now. I don't think bringing back any title right now uh, would be good. Well, you know, most of the titles that were quote-unquote interesting all have far superior spiritual successors to them. Like, that U30 title pretty much eventually got replaced by the Never title. Uh, although the Never title doesn't isn't exactly what it was supposed to be when it started, it was supposed to be a title for young guys. And it, and it was also an open-weight title just like the U30 was. Um, you know, there was the NWF title, the IWGP title replaced it. There were other tag titles before the WWF one, uh, the WWF international, the NWA international, those got replaced. Uh, you know, even like that greatest 18 title that was, the whole idea of that was to have a secondary belt that was almost as prestigious as the IWGP. And that's basically what the IC belt is. It's the top secondary belt. So it's like, I don't really think there's any belt. The only one that I can think of that was like really cool and endearing to me. And I think is just so, so awesome was the idea of the J crown. Like mm. the J crown is fucking awesome. And like, 
I I'm here all day to watch dudes walk around with eight to 10 belts at a time. Like hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I love when uh, Austin Aries is doing the, the belt collector gimmick and he just yes. got like 10 belts or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> they weren't even like all that prestigious, but he's got like, he's just draped in gold. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> um, his next question, he says, you know how New Japan counts the number of defenses, which seem to drastically vary upon each title. What are your opinions on what makes any champion's reign historic or at least historical, historically significant? The actual number of defenses, the amount of days holding a belt, the opponents you defeat, the quality of matches, or just the story of the wrestler winning a championship in itself? It's literally every single one of those things combined. It's not any one particular thing in a vacuum. It's, the, it's all of that. I like this question because he doesn't uh, he doesn't actually like what I the thing I hate about championship title reigns in pro wrestling is when people are like I'm a 12 time champion and I'm like bro that means you lost the championship 12 times (laughs) like that's bad so I like you know actual number of defenses amount of days and and the opponents you beat right like I'm like like we talked about like quality of matches. Like that's not, that's not my thing um, necessarily, but I think, you know, in the sport world, you know, that new Japan builds, um, you know, it, it is truly, I think, you know, the hierarchy is number of defenses, the opponents you defeat and then number of days, right? Because we're sitting here with Naito, you know, racking up the days, but, not any defenses and 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 no fault of his own obviously but um you know new japan's got a pretty good rhythm where like you know which events the title is going to get defended at especially the the heavyweight um so i think that that's the you know the amount of days is always going to be kind of tied to you know the ratio of amount of days and number of defenses is going to be pretty close Right. I should look I think, into that. I should run that stat, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> now that I say that out loud. I think there's one other thing, too. Um, it's rare. It does. It happens more often in the tag uh, divisions nowadays than the singles. But if you're champion and you can tag on a little tourney win here or there, that also adds a lot. Because <laughs> it's so rare. Like, what, like two guys have done it in the heavyweights? Like, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And Chris, to your point, you know, we just looked at AJ Styles' career and looking at his second run, he was a champion for five months, but only had like two defenses. So right. a five-month title reign and then, you know, maybe WWE might seem like, oh, they've held the belt for a long time. They're defending the month, the belt every month on pay-per-view, maybe every so often on TV. So they're racking up defenses. But in New Japan, where the title's not defended, it's not always defended every month. Or, you know, you have the G1 in between title offenses. That definitely kind of varies whether or not your title offense has a number, a number of defenses and how great your title reign is. Right. The yeah. summer champion, the summer champion, usually, you know, if, if there's some sort of intermediate there, like if you're a champ between say dominion and king of pro wrestling, like you may only have one defense. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. I think there's a, a strong distinction between a guy having a great championship run and a great championship reign. For instance, like Jay White had a really good championship run. You know, those four months he was champion, great matches, and that was all kind of in the middle of the New Japan Cup. But you wouldn't really call it a great new like championship reign. He had like one title defense before he dropped it. 
And I think that's kind of what the deal is with AJ. Like he had really great championship runs, but his reigns weren't necessarily like the most lauded because he had very few title defenses. So in his last question here, he says, uh, if the young boy comes back from excursion, a married man, are you going to push him up to the mid car or just book him like Drake Maverick? Who, who, who books me? <laughs> well, he said that was a question for me. So, um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, if, if I had a promotion and I was booking you, you'd be, you'd be one of my top guys. So <laughs> married or not. So. That's good to know. <laughs> it's because it's because I can talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, you're I saying have, it's not your in-ring performance. <laughs> no, <laughs> I have Josh out there like MJF, just cutting cut the promo. Give him, give him a five-minute segment every week on TV, <laughs> getting all the heat. Uh, what, what's that one dude in the NWA who talks like the Rock? Oh, Eli Drake. I'd be the Eli Drake of the promotion. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. All right, so we're going to transition to some news here. Some... But, but before we go to the news, do you guys have any final thoughts on the AJ run? Any, any last thoughts? Because we're kind of moving on. Final impressions or no? Uh, I mean, final thoughts for me, um, you know, it was great kind of looking back on AJ's run. Um, had a lot of great matches. I think he was a key part in New Japan during that time period. Um and it's just very interesting seeing, like we talked about some of the matches, not quite holding up to what we remember or what we thought during that time, but also during that time period, they were very high level. And like we mentioned, he really helped push that style along to what New Japan is today and helped elevate to the Bullet Club. I mean, without him, I don't think the Bullet Club gets to where they are um, today and that run they had and getting the Hot Topics and the Funko Pops and all that you know, cool stuff they did. I think the AJ Styles and New Japan partnership was truly a two-way street. So I think they they brought out the best in each other. And I think that AJ leveraged that into a great career uh, with WWE. You know, and I think AJ's had a really cool... uh, You know, if you look at AJ's whole career... He's had one of the most interesting, diverse careers in pro wrestling. And I, I don't think you'd be able to say that about him if he didn't have the the run that he had in New Japan. So, yeah. Yeah, I think you guys um, sum it up best. There's nothing I could really add to that. But I will say, you know, with him having such a varied career, one of my favorite chapters of, of his career and like, it got, it got to a point watching these matches where I was sitting there with my girlfriend. She's she loves wrestling, but she's like, "Can we watch something else?" And I was like, "Oh, you, you want to watch a show?" She's like, "No, we can watch other wrestling. It's just we watch a lot of AJ Styles." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "I mean, I love AJ Styles. I could literally like watch his whole run, like just boom, like because it's it's that awesome. So like as I love the, I love the TNA, the ROH stuff, even the WWE stuff that he did those first couple of years. But like, I think this is my favorite chapter of his career. Nice. Well, moving on, we just have a few news items here. So uh, top of the news here. So it was announced uh, that Tokyo and four other prefectures in the country lifted their state of emergency on Monday. And a, a plan was released for, you know, sports and live events going forward. So 
on June 19th, they're planning to open back up arenas and allowing um, people to have empty arena shows. Then on July 10th, um, they could have 50% up to 5,000 people. And then August 1st, 50% of max capacity of the building. And then we had a question here from Reddit user Viking Payne saying, with Japan lifting their stay-at-home order soon due to the drop in COVID-19 cases, do you guys think NJPW might be able to salvage a new Japan Cup or the best of Super Junior in the summer? Yes. It is certainly a possibility. Um, I haven't heard much about how they're going to book their comeback. They haven't, I don't think they've had much conversation about um, what it was going to look like because they didn't want to get ahead of themselves. So um, I I would imagine that those would be the tournaments that they would try to do, but they, they may be timed a little, they're obviously going to be timed a little bit differently. So um, I think you could skip the New Japan Cup and, and like the calendar looks okay, but I think that um, getting that best of super juniors in somewhere uh, on the calendar this year, if they're if they get back up to speed here, I think that that's probably the priority. Definitely, yeah, I would love if they can yeah, fit in best super juniors. Now we we've talked about them running it, and so has Hiromi running alongside G One. Um, I think that would be great as well. But if they could fit at the tournament in you know before G One, I think that'd be pretty cool too. I am all in on the simultaneous uh big tournaments i also think uh there's a chance that the tournaments are going to be smaller um, than they had anticipated because of travel restrictions so um you know booking booking the foreigners for for those big tours may be a challenge so if that is the case um actually running them simultaneously still you still hold all your booking dates that you already have for the g1 but um you know, maybe the the blocks are smaller or they're single block tournaments, depending on how many guys they can get in. Yeah. Nah, I, I booked a fire best super juniors bracket that had all domestic talent from using the outside companies and it it, it would be so awesome. So that's what they're gonna do. So we're <laughs> gonna see like, you know, junior Hayato and Takashita, guys like that, they're coming in. It's gonna be awesome. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm down for that. That's very old school. So I'm I'm here for that. It's it would be out of uh kind of out of left field from how they've operated recently. But I think there's there's definitely enough domestic talent there if you're tapping into other companies. Oh, you didn't hear Kiyomiya's wrestling Okada. It's happening. <laughs> yeah, there was a story there. He he wants to experience the rainmaker. <laughs> so yeah, it would be interesting to see if they kind of tap in. I know New Japan, you know, they've kind of come alongside other promotions to meet with the government, and I know they always, in the past, there have been times where they help out other promotions financially or use some of their stars. So it would be interesting to see if they do use more domestic talent for Best of Super Juniors and G1. You know, it's interesting because I'm not going to sit here and say Japan, New Japan is a completely altruistic company or anything of, of that nature. But when you hear them saying like positive things about helping like outside companies and stuff, you kind of believe that it's not just fan service the way that you would if it was like WWE. <laughs> you like you think that there's at least a little bit of genuineness to like what they're saying. Like it's not complete BS. <laughs> I feel like they haven't uh, misguided our trust, um, at least not not recently. So. Yeah. Not, un- not under the Bushy Road Rain and, and Herald. So um, they've been pretty honest with how they want to go forward, too. So there's no reason to, to think that they would uh, 
they would bullshit us like that. There was that time Kidani wanted to do a, a second coming of the UWFI invasion, but that never happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm glad that the, the COVID cases are going down in Japan, and there seems to be some light in the tunnel here, and that, you know, in, in a few months here, it looks like we can get some New Japan up and running again. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> what would you guys do for the first show? Like, what, if you were booking a, the comeback, the first show with fans? Like, what would your main event be? Um, I mean, I don't really know. It it depends on the circumstance and the timing, I suppose. Like, I would say, hopefully, if you're able to do Super Juniors and G1 at the same time, it just works itself out. And that's kind of a clean, fresh start. You don't need storylines to kind of explain why it's happening. Like, the tournament's why it's happening. And, you know, you can, you can book a, a really great main event on the first night of the G1, they love to do that anyway. So it it makes all the sense in the world. Um, But if it's not, and you end up doing like, you know, like your first show and say like August and there's no G1 running, then I don't know. Like that's something where I'm like, I'm glad I'm not Gato. Maybe, maybe you run back that anniversary show or at least some aspects of it that people had wanted. Or maybe you do like a, new japan solidarity type of thing and and there's no storylines you just uh you almost treat it like it's a second um oh god why why do i always forget it what's the show after wrestle kingdom new year dash you you treat it like a second new year's dash you know it's just a a a restart show and you can kickstart some storylines based off that but then again maybe not because we don't maybe i guess depends on what they know they'll be able to do going forward and not you know so it just depends but that's the way i see it i guess yeah, I was just thinking that. Uh, like, I think I think the best main event they could put together. Say it's just like a random Corkin, right? And they they finally have to st- they can have some fans in the building. You know, I would put the tag titles up because you've got Ibushi and and Tanahashi holding those things, and at least you get you get a bunch of big stars in a match that'll probably feel good. Um, you know, I don't know if necessarily you pay off the you know what was starting with Taichi and. Um, and Zack Sabre Jr. But I think if you put, you know, Ibushi and Tanahashi, you know, as the, the face of the company defending their tag team titles in a, you know, kind of a miscellaneous main event, it could be against anyone. It could be against G.O.D., you know, it could be against Sonata and Evil, but like put a bunch of stars in the ring and have some stakes and just re kind of restart things. But I, yeah, I think the idea of doing a New Year Dash type even if you're just reminding people of what storylines were happening three months ago um, and a New Year's Dash type booking, I think that could be a, a cool way to go about it too. Maybe you main event with like an eight man tag. You do like. Right. LIJ or a 10 man. You do like LIJ versus a mismatch of like the Chaos Sekiyun guys and you kind of kick off some storylines there and you get star power. You get Tanahashi, Naito, and Okada all in the same match. Maybe, right. maybe you do right. that. I mean, like, and and how often does that happen, right? Like, so you, you got to do a feel-good, I think, though. Yeah. Um, both of you guys are kind of in the similar thing as me. I was thinking either, if I'm doing a singles match, I'll do that Hiromu Naito match just because there was so much hype behind that and so much excitement. I think <laughs> no. that's a match that needs to happen. <laughs> This man Jeremy wants to throw a banger first night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I see. I'm of the opinion that that's a match that could actually be really awesome in an empty arena. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but it, I mean, it's a waste. But yeah. it would be 
those two guys could pull that off. Yeah. Or like you guys are saying, like a multi-man tag. I think you can do like Lij versus Bullet Club and have Lij beat Bullet Club. You know, do like an elimination style uh, pinfall submission over the top rope elimination match. You know, Josh, your favorite matchup. It's my favorite. Yeah, Lij versus Bullet Club. Like you mentioned, Lij versus you know, you know, Mega Ace, Mega slash Golden Ace. You know, Chaos, whatever mix up there. So yeah, I think there's a, a cool some cool options that they could do. I just hope it's soon. Yeah, as soon as it can be. <laughs> um, so just some, some last few things here. There's a lot of great content up on nineteen uh, NJPW1972.com and NJPW World right now. Um, there's the Seven in the Chamber, Tamatango talking about Seven Years of Bull Club Part Two on YouTube and NJPW World. They have the best finish slash best entrance series they've been doing where they asked wrestlers about their best finishing uh, matches and their best entrance into matches. They just started a new series, Why I Became a Wrestler. That's up on NJPW World and YouTube. On the site, there is the second part of the Chain Reactions Hiroki Goto column. There's also the third part of the Fans uh, Bring the Questions Match column with Kazuchika Okada. Do you know what that's like? That's like um, how every match is an empty arena match now. Every show here is a fans bring the questions match. Like <laughs> it's every single week. <laughs> um, there's the uh, fourth part of the Aces High column with uh, Tanahashi uh, talking, uh, portraying himself as a young fan. Yo, he was talking about looking up girls' skirts. You see that? Yeah. <laughs> Tanahashi trying to get himself canceled. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, then we met, talked about earlier about the uh, the new uh, Super Seven Ultimate Action Figures with Lij with Tetsuya Naito, Hiromu Takahashi, Evil and Bushi, and those will all, be all, all I know is you know where my stimulus money is going. I'm buying the entire New Japan series. I'm gonna buy the AEW. They're made by the same people, right? Super Series Seven. I think so. Yeah. I'm buy the AEW series because I think they're all scaled to look exactly the same, about the same quality. And then I'm going to do that super show that everyone keeps asking about. And I'm going to do it still motion. I'm going to put it on YouTube. <laughs> You're going to open the door? You got, you got a lot of time on your hands, friend. I'm going to open the forbidden door. And, uh, you know, Kenny, Kenny's not going to win. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. But yeah, these are available to uh, pre-order um, at preorder.super7.com and will close on June 7th. So get your pre-orders in if you want to get those LIJ action figures. And then there's also a, a new edition of Rocky Romero's Pro, English, Pro Wrestling English, It's All Over. So that wraps it all up for the news. Uh, Chris, thanks again for coming on the show and being the first guest in this uh, new little mini-series we're doing until New Japan comes back. Uh, give the people your plugs and where they can find you online. Uh, I'm on Twitter at the Chris Samsa. I run the website sportofprowrestling.com where I cover New Japan Pro Wrestling statistics as well as AEW, Dragon Gate, NWA, NXT, and more to come. Um, you can find my written work at voicesofwrestling.com or pwtorch.com. I love coming on, keeping it strong style. And we you love having any, you on, man. Aside from your plugs, you got any uh, other like projects coming up? I know you just mentioned the other show you're about to do. Oh, yeah. So I'll, I'll be on. Uh, Sean, so Sean Radican at PW Torch is doing um, a retrospective like watch-along kind of thing with the 2013 G1, which was a really fun G1. Um, and then 
at sportofprowrestling.com. I will soon be posting uh, complete historical statistics for the G1 and Best of Super Juniors tournaments, which has been kind of my quarantine project. Um, finding all that data and cross-checking it and working with some other people in the industry to, to pull together kind of um, the the finishes for all these matches and, and um, either watching, you know, watching them or um, cross-checking them with multiple sources. So um, that'll be my next big new Japan project. That'll probably, it'll probably go up this week. Cause um, I've got some time to kind of organize it all. Nice. We're looking forward to checking that out, man. And that's going to wrap things up for this week. So next week we'll be back with Matthew Mayer, AKA the implications from Lords of Pain Radio. The voting this week, the, the theme poll is the new Three Musketeers. So we'll be voting on either Hiroshi Tanahashi, Shinsuke Nakamura, or Katsuyori Shibata. Those will be going up. The poll will be up on Wednesday, uh, 12 noon Eastern time. So be on the lookout on that poll and vote for which one of the new Three Musketeers you want to hear us talk about with Imp next week. And we'll be picking uh, whoever wins. We'll pick three matches and kind of run, th- run through their career the same way we did with AJ here on today's episode. If they pick Shibata, then I'm going to pick one of his matches as Makai number four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I won't you know, throw out who I hope wins. But yeah, so just go out there and uh, get your votes in. So if you enjoyed today's bro, show... Bro, I know I know you want Nakamura to win. <laughs> I, I, no comment. Um, I'm the, I don't want to sway the voting. So you, got, you guys vote and let the, let the best musketeer win. I am afraid because last week we joked about Kenny not doing so well, but we thought we thought we were just being facetious, and then he really didn't do so well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll see what happens there with the voting this week. Uh, if you enjoyed today's show, uh, please consider making a dona- donation, visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate. Click on that donate button under the Keeping a Strong Style logo. Make sure you connect with us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at KI Strong Style. Follow me at Jeremy L. Donovan, also at Social Suplex. You can follow Chris at the Chris Samsa on Facebook. We are Facebook.com slash Social Suplex in the Wrestling Square Circle Facebook group or Facebook.com slash group slash Wrestling Square Circle. On Instagram, we are at Social Suplex. On Reddit, on the Pro Black Guy, Josh is keeping a strong style. You can check out our Discord server, Social Suplex. Uh, check out all the other shows on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We have One Nation Radio, hosted by Rich Latta and James Boyd. We have Grown Men Watch This Shit, hosted by Jeremy Tate and Chris Bryan, Get in the Ring, hosted by Danny and Beast Mike. And on Saturdays, we have All Things Elite with Floyd Johnson Jr., Amy O., and Tiffany. So don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating and review, and we will catch you next week on Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. It's real. Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time.